Welcome, everyone, to Episode 9 of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shrout. Our guests today are Steve Oppenheim, Wayne Schiff, and Joe Trila. Remember that order. It's arbitrary, but it's going to be consistent throughout the game. So let's start now by going in that order, Steve, Wayne, Joe. Each of you just briefly state where you're Skyping from and one sentence or so about yourself, starting with Steve. Hi, I'm Steve Oppenheim. I'm Skyping from Shaker Heights, Ohio. I'm a one-day Jeopardy champion, and I've kind of been in the trivia community for uh, like eight years now. So probably all that's really interesting about me. All right, Wayne. Wayne Schiff. I'm from uh, the beautiful Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania. I can be found hosting trivia nights a few nights a week. I've been writing for several years and I've uh, been on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and Million Second Quiz. Okay. Wait for Steve to unwrap his food. All right. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. And recreational thinking. Answering one or two of the questions from Antioch, California, Joe Trela. I was on Millionaire back in 2000 and I've uh, been at lots of Tacona's. And I uh, next month I will be, or actually in April, excuse me. I'll be at uh, TriviaCon. Hi, this is Future Yogesh, noting that when Joe says that he was on Millionaire, that's a major understatement. Google his name and you'll see what I mean. All right, so just a very brief overview of the game for listeners. The game's in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. First round I call the pre-Rs round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle things that I've written before. Also reflects the ethos of this show in that every week my hard drive space is reduced, my cheap recording equipment gets reused, and this show <laughs> is, of course, recycled. Uh, so these questions will serve mostly as a warm-up. They'll be worth a tenth of a point and may be called in as tiebreakers if necessary. So for these questions, you will answer as individuals, and it'll go in order. So the first person the question is directed at will get the first chance to answer. If they miss, it'll go to the second, then to the third if both of them miss. So the further back you are, the less of a direct shot you have to answer, but the more time you have to think, and potential answers could get taken off the table. And we'll rotate so each of you gets to answer three questions in first position, three in second, and three in third. And then the rules will change after this. This round and I will explain those rules when we get to them. So again, just a general reminder, you know, to kind of uh, don't internalize your thinking, talk the audience through your process. People seem to enjoy getting that kind of insight. You don't have to talk just for the sake of talking, but there's some interesting connection you have with the question, the answer, or anything. It's, uh, you know, good content. I'll, I'll try to wall off the part of my brain that would scare everybody, but <laughs> leave the part that might be interesting to hear. I was going to say, in the interest of full disclosure, I don't believe there is a connections around in this, but I am a gold medalist along with Sarah Lehman and Brian Neves in Yogesh Connect when it was run. So um, no, yes. no conflict of interest here, though. I have no, no foreknowledge of the question. Right. You're not going to scare us into forfeiting. No. <laughs> yeah, no, no one has foreknowledge of the question, though you did select your own categories. But that format, that Yogesh Connect quote-unquote format, may or may not make an appearance in today's game. We'll find Ooh. out. All right, so question one, we'll start with Steve in first position. Here we go. Whose play Nemesis staged for the first and only time in Stockholm in 2005, over a century after its author's death, was described by The Guardian as, quote, a lurid parade of torture, rape, and incest that features a drug-induced vision of the Virgin Mary and a conversation with Satan and ends in a 40-minute torture scene, end quote. Oh, huh, a nemesis. So, said in Sweden, and it's chock full of, uh, you know, exciting things like conversations with Satan and, and torture. Um, I'm probably wrong, but I will just go with a Swedish playwright, so I'll say 
Strindberg, but that's probably wrong. Yeah, that's the reflex guess of Swedish playwright is generally Strindberg, but of course, you know, this podcast, we don't make things quite so straightforward. I, I figured as much, yes. <laughs> right, so that's a good guess, but not correct. Wayne? As far as Swedish and playwrights, forget it, I know nothing. I'll just go with somebody who I think is from that general area. I don't even know if he is Swedish or a playwright. Kierkegaard? All right, Kierkegaard, I believe, was Danish, but again, good guess. Joe? Uh, well, again, I'm not big on my uh, Scandinavian playwrights, but I will toss one out there that I might sort of know of. Gibson? Ibsen, again, um, not Swedish. Actually, I discussed in another context recently, although identified with Norway, right now, Norway is very proud to claim him. During his lifetime, he wasn't all that popular there. Uh, he spent much of his life in uh, other parts of Europe and wrote most of his famous plays, or many of his famous plays, while living in Germany or Italy. And he actually wrote in Danish, which was the language that the educated class in Norway used at the time. There's a lot of really complicated history there. But um, yeah, his plays often premiered outside of Norway as well, including, oddly, Ghosts premiered in Chicago, Illinois, for some reason. Oh. Well, I mean, they do say that no true prophet is accepted in his hometown during his life, right? So he must right. have... Uh... He was, he was on the right path. <laughs> he was the enemy of the people. Yes, exactly. So this, Aha, you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we see what you did there. So this, again... It's going to happen a lot. <laughs> right. In this case, you know, this was this person's only play, and it was not produced during his lifetime. It wasn't produced even within 100 years of his death. So not someone known as a playwright, a famous Swede with ambitions in many fields and the money to support his leisure ah. activities. And then his name was Alfred Nobel. Ah, okay. That's right. interesting. And that will lead into the second question. This question goes to Wayne. So speaking of Alfred Nobel and the Nobel Prizes, here's her question. I'm being perfectly serious. The 1996 feature film Infinity saw Matthew Broderick direct himself in a biopic of which Nobel Prize winner? Oh, darn, I was hoping for more information. Matthew Broderick, 1996, Nobel Prize winner. I don't even know if I could pick one that would make any sense for him to do. Kennedy. Uh, I don't think Kennedy, I don't think any of Kennedy's won Nobel Prizes. John F. Kennedy did get a Pulitzer. So Joe is in second position. I had better get this because where I went to as an undergraduate at Caltech, he's sort of a quasi-deity. At my residence hall, there was a, a residence house. There's kind of a phrase over the main entrance and they've got various scientists, Newton, Darwin, Pasteur, kind of looking up to him. That would be Richard Feynman. Yeah. So I began by saying I'm being perfectly serious. The book this film <laughs> largely adapted from is called Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. Ah, okay. So that is correct for Joe. First correct answer on the board. And the next question will start with Joe. A 2019 Super Bowl ad featuring a clip from Jorgen Lett's 1982 documentary, 66 Scenes from America, was intended to launch the hashtag, hashtag eat like whom. <laughs> uh, let's see, 1982, 66 scenes from America, 2019, eat like, oh gosh, 1982, Magic Johnson? <laughs> Interesting guess. Steve? Can you repeat the question? Sure. A 2019 Super Bowl ad, so that's from the previous year Super Bowl, Pre not the previous one. Previous year, okay, yeah. 2019 Super Bowl ad featuring a clip from Jorgen Lett's 1982 documentary, 66 Scenes from America, was intended to launch the hashtag, hashtag eat like whom. So, 1982, 
Yeah, eat like. So it's a thing I would be tempted to say like Mike, but that wouldn't really work for H2. Um, also not sure what current company would want someone to eat like. I'm just assuming this is an athlete or somebody because of the nature of virality and hashtags. So I will guess... Might have been a problem at the time. Let's say uh, Mike Aruzioni. <laughs> he would have been big around that time. Yeah, not quite sure who that is, but I'll t- I'm pretty sure that's not the correct answer. That so, was my second guess. Really? <laughs> yeah. Miracle on Ice uh, yeah. related figures. Can you so like, yeah. Okay, and Wayne, finally. I'm going to stay with the sports-related things, and since there's a phrase called eat like a bird, I'll just say eat like bird as in Larry Bird. Interesting. I like that logic. But yeah, this ad that was very weird when it appeared because for no apparent reason, Burger King, in place of a more conventional ad, showed a clip from a documentary of a Burger King burger being eaten by Andy Warhol. Oh. And it was intended to launch the hashtag eat like Andy. Yeah. I'm guessing that one didn't go far. Yeah, apparently you're not even remembering it a year later. So, um, <laughs> Hashtag confused face. Yes. All right. So Jorgen was more famous, I think, for being spotlighted in the, the Five Obstructions, a film made with uh, Lars von Trier. Anyway, we're starting now with Steve on question four. Thanks to a bill signed by Sarah Palin, since 2010, Alaskans have celebrated what holiday on February 2nd? Hmm. All right. So holiday on February 2nd. So thinking that it was likely a holiday at least around that time before. I don't think she would have made Christmas in February or New Year's Day. Uh, I certainly hope not. But I'm going to say, I don't think it's MLK Day because I feel like the only trivia thing about that is Arizona. So I'll say President's Day. All right. I see the logic there. Um, But yes, Sarah Palin, not a president, thankfully, and also not a creator of President's Day. So we'll go now to Wayne. Well, being from Pennsylvania, I better know February 2nd is Groundhog Day. <laughs> Good point. So is that the answer you're locking in? or I don't know why it would need to be in Alaska, and I don't know that there's any groundhogs <laughs> out there, but I know that that is Groundhog Day, so that's what I'll go with. All right. So, I mean, you are definitely on the right track, but of course, that holiday long predates Sarah Palin's governorship, so that's uh, not correct. Yeah, that would have been the, I was kind of on the top of my list, but that would have been the obvious one. Um, February 2nd? I am going to go with the day that the territory was purchased from Russia. So maybe something to do with William Seward. Okay, so you're just saying basically celebrating something relating to the acquisition of the territory? Yeah, yeah. All right, so of the three of you, the one who was on the right track was Wayne, both in pointing out that the date is associated with Groundhog Day and that there aren't really groundhogs in Alaska. (laughs) So, you know, obviously, you know, looking for something more localized in terms of pride, she made that date in Alaska, Marmot Day. Okay. Basically celebrating a similar animal, but one that was more popular, more associated with Alaska. So if it sees its shadow, there's 30 days of sun and they can play that night (laughs) baseball game. And if not, they can't, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, so it's six more months of winter. Um, so the next question, it'll start with Wayne. This is the solve for X format I've used before, where it's nothing to do with algebra. I just replace a word or phrase in the question with X, and you have to say what it is. In this case, it'll be a character I'm looking for, not a performer. Just keep that in mind. 
After his girlfriend Louise Ford left him for a well-known actor three decades his senior, British comedian James Acaster quipped, Until you get left for X, you don't realize how frequently he pops up. There's a shop two streets from my house that sells masks of his face. There's nowhere where I'm going to go that he's not there. Which beloved fictional character is X? Three decades older. Looking at England and masks of the face. Other than Guy Fawkes, I don't know how many <laughs> masks they have going around England. <laughs> he's way more than three decades older. Uh, the guy and its masks, older in England, Michael Caine. I don't think he's a fictional character. But... <laughs> All right, well, hmm. well um, I know that this character isn't super old, old, but not a spring chicken. Uh, Sherlock Holmes. All right, good guess, but not right, Steve. So again, yeah, thinking British fictional characters, I know this one is around the right age, but there's too many of them for it to be it. But I would say Doctor Who, but I, I believe I'd have to give which Doctor, so I guess I'll <laughs> say the first. So, of course, you know, every pedantic person knows the character is called the Doctor. In the Star. Doctor, okay. Right? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I guess if, if the original quote had said Doctor Who, I would have had to accept that. But yeah, I, I mean, I... Right. Well, I can sidestep the whole question because no version of the Doctor is the okay. correct answer. Kind of figured, but... But yes, in this case, his girlfriend left him, I think, after doing a play with the much older Rowan Atkinson. Oh, that we all makes know. a lot of sense, so... The famous character he's associated with, Inspector McGray. Oh, wait, no. Um, <laughs> No, in this case, there are two, but the one that's maybe created, and again, you know, this was something James A. Castor said as part of a comedy routine, so he was trying to heighten up the absurdity of it. So it's not Blackadder. It's, it's much more absurd, I think, to be left for Mr. Bean. Mr. Bean. I was going to say, what, ah! what, is the name, what is the name of his Blackadder character? Because I've seen clips of it. It's very funny, but... Uh... Well, I mean, there's four, well, there's at least four different versions of the character, but they're usually... Okay. Usually have the name Edmund. Edmund, okay. Uh, so, next one starting with Joe. What was unique about the 1975 senior prom of the private preparatory girls' school Holton Arms? Uh, hmm. Senior prom, 1970, Holton Arms, C75, 76. What was happening then? Uh... Trisha Nixon, that's too early. I Sean Cassidy was there. That was your locking in? That's my locking in. All right, Steve? So I remember this coming up in one of your, I think it was one of the super hard quizzes, and I'm sure it was probably in a blog post too, but there's a lot of those, and I tend to pay more attention to the ones that I'm actually good at and have a snowball's chance in hell of answering. But I remember the general gist of it, so I'm going to say Amy Carter was at it. All right. That's not, well, that's not accurate, nor kind of what I'm looking for. So, uh, Wayne? Okay. Well, I was wrong. Then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Carter didn't get to the White House until yeah, 77. And Amy Carter was only about seven years old at the time. But Gerald Ford's daughter had her prom at the White House. So that's what I'm going with. It took place at the White House. Mm. And that is exactly what I was looking for. Yes, that's only what it was. It took place at the yes. White House. Okay, yeah. I knew this was presidential adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it was the prom of Susan Ford, the daughter Susan of Gerald Ford. Okay. But the unique part of it is that it was the only prom ever held at the White House. All right, so that's one for Joe, one for Wayne. And now the next question will start with Steve. Who told a GQ interviewer in 2017 that his signature look, quote, stands for the third mixtape, the Holy Trinity, and the three-pronged family of myself, my daughter, and my girl? Hmm, three-pronged. Signature look... So somebody who's 
known for an odd appearance or because otherwise i would there are other tracks i would go on i'm just trying to think of somebody with an odd appearance this i don't know that his appearance is that odd but this just sounds like a kanye west quote so i'm gonna say kanye west all right kanye west good guess not right name well i was gonna go with kanye if i couldn't think of anything (laughs) else i'm a little in trouble here but that whole signature look part is the thing that's really getting to me i'll go with the weekend since he had that crazy roadrunner style hair all right again decent guess joe okay uh so going over the question again it stands for his third mixtape the holy trinity and what was the last item the three-pronged family of myself my daughter and my girl okay Mm, i'm trying to think of three somebody with the stripes in the hair maybe uh i don't know i don't even know if his hair is like this drake all right, so it's interesting all three of you went immediately to rappers, since I don't think, I didn't explicitly say that this was about, actually I didn't say music at all much, well, yeah, mixtape, I guess. Yeah, actually I can see why you all went to rappers, but in terms of rappers, right, the number that I spotlighted was three, in fact, I said it three times, well, third, Trinity, and three, so essentially three times. In terms of rappers whose look is associated with a number three, kind of hoping that that would point pretty clearly toward the one who constantly wears a baseball cap with the number three on it. His name is Chance the Rapper. Oh, okay. Someone I've heard of but not seen very often, so I do not recognize a three baseball cap. Had I known that, that would seem much more obvious in (laughs) in hindsight. Oddly enough, you can't see me if you're listening to the podcast, but I'm wearing a hat with a three on it right now, so that was kind of... No, I'm not, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, even though the listeners won't be able to see you, we can. It's obviously not true. All right. So next one we'll start. And this was the final cycle. So this is the final one in this round that we'll start with Wayne in first position. So here's a question. The Boston Herald Stanley Foreman won the Pulitzer Prize for Spot News Photography for capturing a July 22, 1975 fire on Marlboro Street in Boston. The following year, he won the exact same Pulitzer Prize for a picture that showed Joseph Rakes doing what? Only I know who that was. Um, well, since it was around the time of Rosie Ruiz, let's just go with cheating in the Boston Marathon. I like that guess. Very amusing, but not correct. Joe? Okay. I think this may have had to do with the busing riots back then, so attacking someone with an American flag on a pole. Yeah, so that year, 1976, of course, the year everyone was really focused on patriotism, on the symbolism of America and how it expressed itself. And in Boston, of course, it expressed itself by a white man using the American flag to attack a black man during desegregation-related protests. So, yes, the picture was called The Stabbing of Old Soil. That picture, I remember. Not, not, the, not the hat with three on it. <clears throat> yeah, the picture is called The Soiling of Old Glory, and it did win Stanley Foreman his second consecutive Pulitzer Prize for Spot News Photography. It's good I didn't get to embarrass myself by saying that it's the cameraman who was getting Carlton Fisk waving his home run <laughs> 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 I also think it's 1970, 1975, I think, not 76. But. You know how they got that shot? Because uh, he was afraid of, was it a rat? Yeah, he, there was a rat or something that freaked him out. He forgot to move the camera because he wasn't dealing with it. And that would have been a very bad guess given what the right answer was. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And now the last question of this round before we get to the specialist rounds. And this, again, has a semi-long passage in it, so a close attention when I read it. And this will start with Joe. Consider the following literary extract in which Henry Knight waits impatiently for Elfrida Swancourt to remove her underwear. 
Here's a quote. Opposite Knight's eyes was an embedded fossil standing forth in low relief from the rock. It was a creature with eyes. The eyes, dead and turned to stone, were even now regarding him. It was one of the early crustaceans called trilobites. Separated by millions of years in their lives, Knight and this underling seemed to have met in their place of death. It was the single instance within reach of his vision of anything that had ever been alive and had had a body to save, as he himself had now. So that passage, it comes from Thomas Hardy's A Pair of Blue Eyes, and it is generally considered the origin or inspiration for what now common term? Hmm. Pair of Blue Eyes. Fossil... Undergarments and waiting in the wings. Trilobites, shell, rock, fossil, trilobite, trilobite, Henry Knight. I'll just say waiting in the wings. All right, good guess. I believe next second position is Steve. Yes, so uh, yeah, so Henry Knight and the Trilobite. Uh, there was a lot there about eyes and eye contact, or at least pretend eye contact with with something fossilized, and certainly a a long jump in time. I'm trying to think of anything that might <laughs> connect those two. So a now common phrase. Um, trying to think of a phrase that works for what is kind of running through my head. I, I can't really think of anything. Seeing your own death. I know it's not, but the, a, a better idiom for that. <laughs> <might be. laughs> All right. Yeah, we'll keep something a little more compact. Um, yes. Wayne? Yeah, I keep focusing on the eyes and then said something about, I guess it was like stone or whatever. So I'm just going to go with eyes glazed over. All right. So, I mean, it's true. Eyes was a, a motif and but specifically, you know, looking at broth. But also the bit about feeling like he was about to die, having to save himself. And as I mentioned, he was waiting, well, he was waiting for his love interest to remove her underwear. In this case, it's being set during basically the Victorian era. That was because underwear in those days was quite long and sturdy and could be used to pull him up. Because the reason he was staring at a rock while being afraid for his life is that he was literally dangling from a cliff. This is the first example. Again, in that era, serialized narratives were quite common. This is the first major example of building suspense by literally leaving a character dangling on a cliff, what we now refer to as a cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. Nice. Neato. All right. So we end that round. I believe Joe answered two questions correctly. Wayne answered one and Steve zero. So our scores at the end of that round are Steve 0.0, Wayne (laughs) 0.1. And Joe, 0.2. So literally double the the points of anyone else. Okay. We'll now move into the main part of the game. So starting with round one of the main game, the not all that hard round. And now the rules are going to shift a bit. In this round and all successive rounds, each of you will get three specialist questions related to your categories. Standard caveat, they're not intended to be a fair comprehensive test of the knowledge of them. They may relate directly or obliquely to keep everyone on their toes. I won't reveal the categories up front. So before you can answer, your opponent will get to work together to try and steal the points from you. You'll only get a chance to answer the point your opponents miss. Sometimes I 
I may pass the question to you without telling you if your opponents got it right or wrong. In those cases, for game theory purposes, you should just assume they got it wrong. So as in previous episodes, there are going to be a few bonuses. Those are occasional extra questions people get stolen from. So far, they haven't shifted the outcome of any game, but they give people who get stolen from a chance to show off a bit of extra knowledge and give listeners a few extra questions. And the bonuses are not a consistent feature. They'll be associated with some, but not all questions. They're kind of unevenly and quasi-randomly sprinkled in. They'll relate to the question. They won't always fit into the same category or be at the same level of difficulty. And so for this first round, the questions are not all that hard, so they'll be worth two points as a steal, one point as a specialist. And now, and for the rest of the game, when two people steal a question, both of them will get full points for it, even if only one knew the answer. So that throws in a little element of luck there. So for question one, we'll start with Wayne and Joe working together to steal from Steve. Everyone ready? Yep. 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 All right. Here's the question. What is the name of the groom at the Indian wedding disrupted by the Seinfeld gang in that show's backwards episode, The Betrayal? This name is definitely a shout out to the Nobel Prize winning author of the acclaimed reverse chronology play, Betrayal. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I have not, was not a Seinfeld fan <laughs> or a reading of books fan. <laughs> I don't like backwards things. Um, but yeah, not, not a Seinfeld fan either. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, betrayal. Well, Any idea on that? It's an Indian author if you can name any. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, Naipaul? You want to go with that? I'm going to defer to you completely because I've gotten sure. zero. <laughs> I think it's VS Nightball. Uh, close enough, I guess. Do we go with that? All right. Uh, I think it's Nightball. I might have the name wrong. Venno VS is the initials. We'll go with that. All right. I see the logic behind that, and he definitely was a Nobel Prize winning author, but that's not correct. Steve? Yes. So the author this refers to is not Indian, but his last name, I guess, sounds enough like an Indian first name that it was not completely out of place when they named that groom Pinter after Harold Pinter. And as Elaine said, when he was dating her, he went by Peter. But yes, I'm locking in Pinter as my answer. Yeah, I guess I technically would have had to accept Peter or Ron Awadja because I didn't specify the real first name or whatever. But yes, the key fact of interest here is that the name Pinter was a reference to Harold Pinter, whose play Betrayal was basically the inspiration for that episode and is paid homage to in the title of it. All right, so that is correct for Steve. And now we go to Steve and Joe trying to steal from Wayne. Ari Loyendijk, dubbed the Flying Dutchman, won the 1990 and 1997 editions of the Indianapolis 500, and in 1996 set a lap record that still stands to this day. But if Americans know the name Ari Loyendijk at all, it's likely because of an association with which television franchise? Hmm. Loyendijk, okay. So you were saying that this is a IndyCar driver from uh, the Clues? Is it NASCAR, IndyCar? Two-time winner of the Indianapolis 500. Okay. Maybe... Sorry, go ahead. So, because things are usually a little more oblique when Yogesh asks them, I wouldn't necessarily think a show that's associated with cars or racing, but somebody who may have been a bit character on a show. Mm-hmm. Though I have no idea where that would be. I'm guessing maybe he was the Stig, or one of more of the Stigs on, uh, shoot, what was the show? With uh, Jeremy Clarkson, the racing one. Uh, Jesus. Oh, Top Gear? Top Gear. Maybe. Maybe it was the Stig in Top Gear? 
that is the most popular racing related show I know, so I would be fine yeah. discussing that. Okay. So we're asking for the show? Television franchise or show, yeah. Any okay. show in the franchise. Okay. The top gear then. Alright, you're locking in top gear. Mm-hmm. Wayne? Well, I could get you on a technicality here because Ari Lyondike Jr. was also on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? The <laughs> week for The Bachelor. So my answer is The Bachelor. Uh, okay. So, so again, my, my question, you know, again, as you said, they're designed to be parsed strictly. So when I said Americans know the name, not the person, but the name Ari Lyondike, right? They know it through his namesake son, Ari Lyondike Jr., who was a contestant on The Bachelorette and was uh, sufficiently charismatic to be invited back as the focal point of the season of The Bachelor. So despite his other accomplishments and appearances, the one he's most associated with and the one that the name in America is most associated with is The Bachelor franchise. All right. Now the next question will go to Wayne and Steve trying to steal from Joe. Nearly all of the 27 known moons of Uranus are named for Shakespearean characters. The exceptions are Belinda, Umbriel, and arguably Ariel, all of whom are characters in what 18th century mock heroic epic? Um, mock heroic epic makes me think the rape of the lock, because that's the Pope, right? That's the Pope one that it's just about a girl getting her hair cut off, but they play it far more seriously than that. Though I guess that's is it more of a melodrama than a her- was it what? Was that from the 1700s, though, because he said 18th century? I believe so. I'm pretty sure it's Pope, which is 18th century, 1700s. So that's what I would go with. I can't think of anything else. Mock heroic, epic. I, mean, like, I hear Ariel, I think Little Mermaid. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it, it's, little, but it's, it's not that. I think Little Mermaid is, is it Hans Christian Andersen? Or it's, sure. it's traditional fairy tale, I think, and not... Yeah, not heroic. That would be my guess, if you're okay with that. Yeah, because I don't know any 1700s uh, <laughs> heroic epics. All right, so we'll lock in with, appropriately enough, The Rape of the Lock. All right, yeah. Ariel's kind of an ambiguous case in that there's also an Ariel in The Tempest. The so Tempest, yeah. It's not entirely clear which one is the namesake, but definitely Ariel and Umbriel are sprites, and Belinda is the girl whose hair gets cut in Alexander Pope's The Rape of the Lock. Yep. Mm, nice. So that is the first steal of the game, credited to Steve and Wayne. And no bonus on this particular one, so we'll just go into the next question, which is Wayne and Joe trying to steal from Steve. So, until 1914, the American League baseball franchise from Cleveland was known by what name? Referencing not the team's sleepiness, but their popular <laughs> second baseman and sometimes manager, who was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1937. Oh, man. Doubt there was a guy named Insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> but about sleepiness, so he's tired, he's run down. Well, there were the Cleveland Spiders. But does sleepiness fit in with that? The spider would run Named down. after, uh, like, the, the second baseman. I don't know if his last name would have been Spider. <laughs> Unless it was a nickname, I don't know. Well, I know there were the Cleveland Spiders back then, so Plus that's the only hole. other... Sorry? Yeah, the, yeah, I know there's Cleveland Spiders. I'm just trying to figure out how spiders can fit in with sleepiness or a Hall of Fame player. Well, we were talking about rundown and, I don't know, running down the players and uh, yeah. there. But, and I mean, is there any like, other... It could even be like a nickname of a player from that point of, of time as opposed to like his actual name. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it's named after a player because you got the Cleveland Browns named after Jim Brown and then you got this Cleveland team named after a player. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as we discussed in a previous episode, the Cleveland Browns were named after Paul Brown. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what else do you think? 
I mean, I don't know of any other. I remember the Cleveland Spiders. And I was just trying to come up yeah. with something else because of sleepiness and yeah, for a player. I'm guessing running down like you know like a bull spider it's a, or a tarantula or something. <laughs> I, that's all I can think of. So Cleveland um, Itsy Bitsies. There we go. The Cleveland Arachnoids. Well, we know uh, Spiders was a team, and yeah, you know, nothing else. We may as well go with that. But yeah, I said I'd go with spiders yeah. walking in. Okay, I believe the Cleveland Spiders predate the American League. Not 100% certain on that, but I'll just pass it over to Steve. Uh, yeah, they do. The Spiders are mostly famous now for their 1899 team, which lost over 140 games because they were owned by a team that owned another team, the St. Louis NL franchise, and they just put all the good players on that team. It's part of the reason the American League actually got a foothold at first, because syndicate baseball made the game kind of a joke for a bit. This is another one where I could, you know, give a different answer, which I think would be technically correct, the best kind of correct, except it wouldn't be, because even though they were also known as the Blues and the Broncos for a little bit in their early, early American League tenure, they were named after their star player and manager, which was not uncommon at the time. Uh, Brooklyn were called the Robins because of Wilbert Robinson, their manager. In Cleveland's case, it was Napoleon Knapp Lajoie, so they were called the Knapps. And I will lock in that answer. Yeah, he actually, I think, stepped down as manager in 1909, five years before he stopped playing and the team had to look for a new name. But yes, uh, the Cleveland Naps is correct. LaJoy, a very popular player, was actually part of the second class inducted to the Hall of Fame, along with two other players who also had Cleveland connections. Do you remember who those were, Steve? Uh, so one of them's Tris Speaker, and I think the other one is Cy Young. Yeah, Cy Young did in fact play for the Cleveland Spiders in the pre-modern era. But yeah, next question will go to Steve and Joe trying to steal from Wayne. In the early 1990s, cartoonist Rob Armstrong, creator of the comic strip Jumpstart, got a call from his mentor asking if it would be okay to lend his surname, Armstrong, to what character? This character, who first appeared in 1968, may or may not have influenced a surname of a Muppet who debuted two years later. A Sesame Street Muppet, in other words. Yes. Um, so are we looking for the, the mentor or the character? The character. Okay. I would guess Franklin from Peanuts. Hmm. Is he? Um, is his last name Armstrong? I don't know, but, but 1968, Franklin, I think, is when he was cre- when he showed up, and there was the Sesame Street character Roosevelt Franklin. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And, and that would make sense. Uh, I, I'm sure Charles Schultz was a mentor to right, and Rob Armstrong, yeah, and Rob Armstrong, and that is African American too. So I think that I'm guessing that would probably be it. That would also make sense. Yeah, I. Okay. That sounds good. That sounds okay. Good. So we'll go with Franklin then. Lock it in. Wayne, did you know the uh, backstory of Franklin? Why he was added to the strip? A woman in Los Angeles, I think a librarian in Los Angeles, contacted Carl Schultz and told him in the interest of representation, it would be nice to have an African-American character to kind of normalize them uh, interacting, you know, as equal status peers with the white kids. And so he was originally afraid of leaning into stereotypes or, you know, writing people outside his experience. But in the end, he agreed it would be a good idea. And so the character of Franklin was added to Peanuts. In the comic strip, he's never had a last name, but for an animated special in the 90s, a last name was required, and so Charles Schultz had mentored uh, African-American cartoonist Rob Armstrong and, as a tribute, gave him the surname Armstrong. Again, another successful steal. That was a great steal, too. <laughs> All right, now Wayne and Steve trying to steal from Joe. Name the... Okay, I'll have to decide, depending on what answers I get, how strict I'll be on acceptability about this one. 
Okay. But we'll see how it plays. So name the animated children's series, which was very funny and really should have caught on with adults, <laughs> and cast Harlan Ellison as himself in a 2010 H.P. Lovecraft spoofing episode called The Shrieking Madness. Ellison later returned in his 2013 series finale, now dubbed Mr. E, and inspired the central gang of characters to repaint their trademark vehicle and embark on a cross-country road trip. Hmm... Their trademark vehicle, a series of characters, I'd be thinking the Mystery Machine and Scooby-Doo. Uh, that that, that, time that would make sense, but then we need to we need to know the name of this particular series of it, because I know that they've done newer Scooby-Doo right. series. In fact, I remember in particular that there have been movies that were WWE and Scooby-Doo tie-ins, which is a fantastic crossover. Otherwise, I'm trying to think. So I so used to go to a lot of you know anime cons, which sort of double as comic cons, and everybody who's not into anime calls them comic cons. And so I know there were like quite a few children's series that were very popular among adults too, and, and had a, a niche following. I don't think any of them make sense for this. I was thinking Gravity Falls, but that's too early. I I don't think that ended in 2013. Was there some um, sort of trademark vehicle that they're well-known? And that's the thing. I don't think there was a trademark vehicle. Same thing with, like, Adventure Time was popular, but I don't think they have a vehicle regular Speed show. Racer. Speed Racer didn't uh, have a movie till later, and the Mach 5, that movie didn't take off at all. They didn't really have characters. I think everything I can think of doesn't quite fit the time frame. There was a show called Regular Show, which is like a kid's show that caught on among adults, but again, I don't think they had a trademark vehicle. So I think we might be looking at Scooby-Doo, but the particular show from when to when. So... I wouldn't know a name, maybe like The New Adventures of Scooby-Doo or something. Yeah, there was Where Are You? Um, that's, the, that's the original, and then you've got like yeah. the 13 Ghosts of with Vincent Price, and there were plenty of a pup named Scooby-Doo, which I watched growing up. I would have to guess on like what the name is, so let's say like The New Adventures of Scooby-Doo. Yeah, that sounds like a good stab in the dark at what yeah, the Scooby-Doo sh- title is, but I we're probably right with Scooby-Doo in, as the I, central. I have a feeling maybe not, but it's like... I, I can't think of anything else that fits the time frame, so I will say the new adventures of Scooby-Doo and lock that in. All right. I'll keep quiet about that and pass it over to Joe. <sighs> okay. Uh, yeah, there was what's there, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You, and then the new... Back when I was a kid, they in syndication, they had the new Scooby-Doo movies, as it was called. They, always, they were the ones that had, like, Sandy Duncan or Mama Cass Elliot or Batman and Robin as guest stars. That always confused me. It's like, it's, not a movie. <laughs> it's like 30 minutes long. Liars. But, uh, yeah, I do remember those episodes with Harlan Ellison voicing, and I am actually, and it was Scooby-Doo, uh, but I think, I think the actual series name, I'm going to say Mysteries, Inc. Repeat that again? Uh, Mysteries, Inc., I-N-C, dot all right, so I basically would have to kind of score this like horseshoes, so not just who's first, but kind of, you know, who can get it close. So if I think if Joe had gotten the subtitle right, I would have awarded the points to him. And he almost did, but I've been pretty strict on wording of exact titles and in particular. So certainly I think, you know, the Inc. versus Incorporated, I would be lenient on. But their gang was very clearly, I think, consistently referred to as Mystery Incorporated. Not mysteries, which is what you said. So I will award the point for that to Stephen Wayne. I remember Mystery Incorporated coming up definitely in a pup named, and I think in the live action movies too. 
Yeah, so you were just a little... If, you, if you'd gotten Mystery Inc. or Mystery Incorporated, I would have given you the point instead of them. But since you both knew Scooby-Doo, I'll, uh, I'll defer to the dealers in this case. All right, so Wayne and Joe now trying to steal from Steve. Alva Bradley II, the principal owner of the Cleveland Indians from 1927 to 1946, is probably the second most famous namesake of his grandfather, Captain Alva Bradley, who was good friends with the parents of Thomas Alva Edison. So this question, it's, it's not going where Steve thought it might go at yes. first. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's continue the chain of namesake. So the famed soccer player, popularly known as Pele, Edson Arantes de Nascimento, was named after Thomas Edison. So now, which notable 8-bit video game protagonist was partially named in honor of Pele? What was the first part of that video game? You said something before the words video game. 8-bit video game. Oh, 8-bit video game? This was a franchise crossing multiple formats, but it was introduced in 8-bit. And named after Pele? Yes. For the protagonist, not the game. Right. Mm. Eduardo Nascimento. Okay. Let's see. For Zelda, there was Link. Uh, let's see. Sorry? Oh, was there a name for the Mega Man guy? Mega Man. Just Mega Man. Nothing more. <laughs> I think so. I, yeah. Uh, let's see. So Zelda was Link, uh, Mario was Mario, Donkey Kong, no. Well, Donkey Kong was still Mario. Yeah. Unless you go with Plane. Donkey Kong still. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Darn. Yeah, a lot of those Wait. games, like spaceships and, and other stuff, right. weren't like actual people really? until like the NES came out. And that's when you started getting players right. as people. So that you're looking at... Unless you meant it was... Five. Sorry, Wayne, do you remember... Paley's full name was Eduardo something? No, not at all. <laughs> I said it in the question, so I'll repeat it. Uh, Thanks. Edson Arantes do Nascimento. N-A-S-C-I-M-E-N-T-O. Edson Arantes de Nascimento. Okay. Uh, Edson. Uh, Edward. Edward. It's full of alchemist, but it's not a big <laughs> game. Not even uh, games themselves where you were like, player going through things like one of the Contra guys, but that wouldn't be Contra. No, let's see. Bad and dudes. Something that had some staying power and lasted, like like Mario, still around. You got yeah. still around. Um, trying to think of a soccer game. Mr. Two? No. I'm thinking it's not going to be a soccer game, because you got... No, yeah. It'd have to be like an adventure or something like that, that they could make multi-platforms out of, not just John Madden 2013, 14, mm. 15. So not Pitfall Harry. Um, and... <laughs> And, and you're looking at something that, you know, if it was space-based, you actually became the person. You weren't just controlling the ship. Mr. Chino, it's not 8-bit. 8-bit. Trying to think of all the games I played. To all the games <laughs> I played before. You were actually like a person. Mm-hmm. Right. So it wouldn't so, even be like a fighting-style game. Edson. Uh, Ed. <laughs> Leisure <laughs> Suit Larry. <laughs> mm. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, these well, Nascimento means Earth. Why named after Pele? Is there something Brazilian? Well, there's yeah, Far no, Far Cry is different. Uh, or not the Far Cry, yeah, the other one of uh, Nathan Drake that's different. Uh, not Croft, eight bit. Croft came later and was more on the what was it, sixteen bit? Yeah, 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 that would have been late 90s. Um, looking at Nintendo's original NES, right? So, done. Zelda series, there's Link. Uh, for Castlevania, there's Simon Belmont. Belmont, Montebello, yeah, I like that, but 
how does that come up his, his name though? Simon isn't really, I don't think that's a, that has anything to do with Edson Arandes de Nascimento. Was there an Edvard, like in Castle Wolfenstein? Because the series doesn't have to be named after the protagonist. Sorry, you got cut off there. What was that again? Castle Wolfenstein came to mind. I had no, that on was, before. Yeah, that was but, E.J. Blackowitz. No, Pitfall Harry. What about the Sega Master System? That was 8-bit, wasn't it? Mm, let's see. The only character I can think of is Alex Kidd. Really is... Nintendo. Was it TurboGrafx or Bonk? But that's well, TurboGrafx 16. So that was 16. Uh, 16. All right, there you go. <laughs> uh, You'd be looking at the Sega Master System prior to the Genesis or the NES. Yeah, Sega Master would have been equivalent to the NES. But the only thing I think of was Alex Kid, and then oh, mm, no. And yeah, I, I, other than like Mario and Zelda, I can't think of any series that really lasted across all the Nintendo platforms. Well, Metroid had Samus Aris, but I don't see their Metroid, relation. I'm trying to think of when I said Mega Man. <laughs> yeah, but that doesn't. I don't know if that name really matches. Anything else, Metroid? <sighs> yeah, I can't even. Co- I'm not even coming up with any other games where you were like. Let's go ahead. I think that Castlevania one you said came the closest. Okay, you want to go with that? I think that came the closest. Okay, so yeah, for character, we'll go ahead and go with Simon Belmont. A lot of video game knowledge. I guess realize now I could have written a lot more video game questions in depth. But um, okay, you locked in Simon Belmont, so I sure. will pass it over to Steve. All right, so this actually is one of my favorite franchises and a character I like too, and yet I did not know the trivia about this name until about a month ago, and I only knew the trivia about the series, I think like two years ago. So it is Metroid, which is named after Metro and Android, which I did not know until like two or three years ago, a Metro like a subway. And the character, it's a very oblique reference, and I believe it's actually because they got Pele's name wrong. They thought it was something else as far as part of it, because the only part of the name that really makes sense, and I was really scared that Joe had it there, it's not Eris, it's Aran. And the only connection to soccer is that she can turn into a ball in her suit. So the correct answer is Samus Aran, which was, yes, named after Pele, but the person who named her did not look up Pele's real name. So got everything wrong except the Iran part. So I will hmm. I will lock in Samus as my answer. Hmm. All right. And now you know the connection between Samus Aaron and the Cleveland Indians. So. Yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Metroid, I'm not a video game person. I always felt a connection to Metroid, though, because the creator Yoshio Sakamoto famously in 2010 at the keynote of the Game Developers Conference noted the debt that the game has to Deep Red and other films of Dario Argento, my favorite director. So, yeah, Samus Aaron is the correct answer. Joe, you, you basically said it. This has happened <laughs> in multiple previous episodes. Someone will say it in deliberation, but then move away from it. All right, so we're in the last cycle now. So in this round, um, the last one that Steve and Joe will try to steal from Wayne before the difficulty goes up a notch. All right. Because <laughs> we're answering something incorrect so far. Yeah, just, just the whispers. The whispers are difficult. So for Steve and Joe now, perhaps the only show to win the Best Comedy Series Emmy, despite being canceled after its first and only season, NBC's My World and Welcome to It starred prolific character actor William Wyndham as John Monroe, a cartoonist at a fictional magazine called The Manhattanite. So this sitcom was inspired by both the life and the writing of which 20th century humorist? Hmm. 
So is this going to be, who is it that worked at the New Yorker for a bit? Um, Thurber? I was going to say, I. Mm. they're calling it the Manhattanite, so I feel like that's a veiled pun on the New Yorker. Yeah. Not, yeah. Very, not veiled, it's just, you know, pun on the New Yorker. Well, it's yeah. veiled for yeah. prime time, you know, yes. network television. To, to, to not, to not <laughs> uh, break any copyrights, but not yeah. exactly subtle. I know that Thurber worked there. I think that, uh-huh. embarrassingly, I might also know that because of Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> when when Elaine gets a New Yorker comic published, it talks about having some great James Thurber gossip. Um, but it does kind of sound like that. He was a humorist as a writer, and he did work for the New Yorker. And I know nothing else about this show, so uh, all I can think is Robert Benchley didn't do Cartoon City. Don't know. I don't know either. So yeah, I will go with I'll go with Thurber. All right, we'll lock in Thurber then. All right, locking in Thurber. So I, in terms of 20th century TV, I have what I call the rule. <laughs> of the two Williams. The uh, <laughs> show that lasts sufficiently long, either William Wyndon or William Shallard or both will make an appearance on it. <laughs> two uh, very prolific actors and William Wyndon did in fact get a series lead and won the Best Actor in Comedy Series Emmy for My World and Welcome to It and he was portraying a fictionalized version of James Thurber. Nice. What year was that, by the way? Do you 19, uh, 69, I think it was a 69-70 season. Okay. Uh, yeah, maybe... It was around 69, at least. Mm-hmm. All right. And now the last question of this round will go to Wayne and Steve trying to steal from Joe. Both the title of a 1940 Robert Heinlein short story and the place where the Harlequin is brainwashed into conformity in Harlan Ellison's Repent Harlequin Said the TikTok Man derive from the same English idiom. So according to that idiom, to deliberately ostracize someone is to send them to what West Midlands city? This city, whose current population is over 300,000, is home to the University of Warwick and to a cathedral that was famously bombed into ruins by the Luftwaffe in 1940. Oh, so sent to, um, that completely did not go where I thought it was, because when, uh, well, when he said idiom and Heinlein, because I think this is Heinlein and not Dick, there's a time travel paradox short story called By His Bootstraps, or, or By Your Bootstraps. I think it's By His Bootstraps. It's basically the I'm my own grandpa thing. But this is not that, but it said city of 300,000 being banished to that got bombed by the Luftwaffe. So is this like the European version of Peoria? But I don't think it's just going to be like Dresden. And I also don't know that that's an idiom, like getting sent to Dresden or something. Yeah, I don't even know. Oh, wait. Um, Isn't it when they say you're like getting sent off to somewhere, don't they say you're getting sent to Siberia, basically? But that's not quite in the right location. But that is sort of a, you know, you're being quarantined. We're sending you off to Siberia. It's not um, a city either. Yeah, it's a region, not a city. And it also wouldn't have, it wasn't firebombed, I don't think. Yeah. It would have been a little out of the theater of war. Um, I was so ready to say, wish you to the cornfield, but <laughs> that's not where this went. Um, so a, a city with a famous cathedral that was firebombed and that, could, that could potentially be an idiom for, yeah, getting sent off to the cornfield or, you know, banished to Peoria. I mean, the idiom could be like off to... Oh, actually, didn't he say like West Midlands? So actually, this would yeah. be British, right? So we're looking at, I was thinking Eastern Europe or something. So I, I think this would be an English city, a British city. So not put out to pasture, obviously. But like, again, Britain's version of, you know, Nowheresville, one horse town. Banished to, uh, I... And then a place with a cathedral that, you know, the, the cathedral would have to be known too. Yeah, but I, I feel know. like that's, there's well, plenty a cathedral of famous one. cathedrals. But yeah, I'm trying to think what's like, uh, I will abide by Yogesh rules and say bum F nowhere. Yeah. In... What about soccer teams? If you can think of soccer teams from England from larger cities, uh, pick one with 300,000 or more. 
Yeah, that is true. You did say 300,000 or more. So this is not a one-horse town. This is a um, a decently sized city. That's more people than are in Cleveland, where I'm from. But it is, uh, like, the other ones are, like, Liverpool and... Manchester? Yeah, I mean, um, I also do feel like there's a lot of titles that have Manchester in it. Again, I don't know if that's considered a place you kind of get exiled to, but I feel like we might be exhausting my knowledge of English or British cities of 300,000 or more. So... Do we yeah, think that, uh, we, we think Man- soccer team? We think Manchester might have had a uh, a cathedral that got bombed. Yeah, every town has one. Sure, that's <laughs> what I was gonna say. I figure most of them do. Sure, we'll go with Manchester. All right. Yeah, you are. There are quite a few cities that have cathedrals in them. Yeah. Not sure yeah. if Manchester is one of them, but very well could be. Joe. Okay. I know in Repent Harlequin said the TikTok man. Um, the place was basically kind of your standard brainwashing city i don't know type thing uh and all you zombies it was in it was in the future and and everything in the world was regimented so the hero wanted to go to this area where there was no law and stuff and it was like a sealed off libertarian area and he immediately loses all his money and possessions and stuff and barely makes it out again the town i remember there was a story i don't know if it was true or an urban legend or what that during world war ii winston churchill and the british government had gotten word that was going to be bombed through having broken the german codes but they didn't want the germans to know they'd broken the codes yet so he didn't order an evacuation of the city and it got attacked along with its cathedral that would be coventry okay yeah, so that was also the story I was going to tell. But yeah, thank oh, you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry. Don't apologize. Am I right about Bias Bootstraps also being, is that different author or? Uh, that no, he, that was a different one. Bias Bootstraps, I think it was the house that was like four dimensional. Uh, the one where his own grandpa was all you zombies. Okay. Oh, yeah, Bias Bootstraps is where he found like his future self or something. The, uh, the maybe house was... They, I think the house was four-dimensional, maybe, and it, or, or maybe you're right. I don't know. I, but I know that all, all you zombies was the... Remembering all you zombies wouldn't have helped, because I wouldn't have remembered Coventry, but yeah. it is a story I really like, because, yeah, it's the one with the, the final line is, I know where I come from, or <laughs> the question is, where did all you zombies, all you zombies, come, zombies from? come from? Which I think all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I just glanced at the Wikipedia of her by Blue Jones, and it does involve a future self, although I think that's more kind of a time-space continuum yeah, thing. Time, yeah, it's not a grandpa yeah. paradox, it's a time thing. Yeah, Yeah, All You Zombies famously is the one where every single character in the story is the same person at yeah. different points in his timeline. My high school writing teachers love that one. Different genders, too, I believe, right? He, yep. He's Yes, so... All right, at the end of that round, we have Steve, 11.0... Wayne, 5.1. Joe, 5.2. I'll go back and check everything when this is done, but I believe those are the scores now as we move into the only somewhat hard round. The rules remain the same, except that the questions are a bit harder and are now worth four points as a steal, three points as a specialist. And just keep marching on, uh, Wayne and Joe, trying to steal from Steve. So this question goes in a few different directions, so hopefully I've written it so it can be followed. All right. So it's pretty well known that the phrase yellow journalism derived from the Hearst versus Pulitzer War over Richard F. Outcalled's comic strip character, The Yellow Kid. Less well known is the original title of Outcalled's comic strip in which he introduced The Yellow Kid. Even less well known than that is the shooting range at Ohio's Camp Perry that took its name from that comic strip, probably least well known of all to most people, is the 1984 light gun requiring NES game that was named for the feature at Camp Perry, most likely, and which actually predates the 10-acre constructed village 
used for tactical training simulations at the FBI Training Academy in Quantico that also possesses this name. So what's the name that's shared by the comic strip, the NES game, and both shooting range? I looked like hell to find this game for myself. I love it. It's Hogan's Alley. Bingo. All right. So, yes, correctly stolen, and that is now four points for Wayne and Joe for Hogan's Alley, a name that has shown up in a surprising number of contexts. I was going to say, I did not know any of those other things, though it would have been easy enough to see that they made sense to be names for that. But I knew Hogan's Alley, obviously. There's only so many light gun games. Duck Hunt. I was going to say, I pretty much began and ended with Duck Hunt there. Yeah, it's like Wild Gunman, uh, yeah, Duck Hunt, Hogan's Alley, there, there's not very many. Duck Hunt, Hunt 2, finally get that dog, Boogaloo. <laughs> I saw something a few years back where somebody modified it, I guess, so you could shoot the dog. Yeah, so I've, I've seen mods <laughs> where you can shoot the dog. It's very cathartic. Yeah. Well, it's not a dog. It's a demon disguised as a dog, so you don't have to feel yeah. bad about shooting dogs. <laughs> Everybody loves dogs, but not that dog. All right, now Steve and Joe stealing from Wayne, and this is going to be our, let's call it, modified-only connect question. Okay. Pretend for a second that I'm Victoria Cord Mitchell, which I'm sure is very easy to pretend, and <laughs> complete this four-part sequence. One, well, here comes old Charlie Brown. Two, good old Charlie Brown. Yes, sir. Three, good old Charlie Brown. Four, how blank, blank, blank. What three words go in those blanks? I hate him. <laughs> I think it is, right? Yeah, because... Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I like that. That makes sense. All right. You're locking in I hate him? I'm uh, good yep. with that, yeah. I, I, I am good, good with that, too. All right, yeah, that was the first PNS comic strip. Those were the word balloons in the first three. And in the fourth one, the character, speaking of Charlie Brown, says... How I hate him. All right. So a bonus for Wayne now. So before Schultz gave his strip the title Peanuts uh, suggested by United Feature Syndicate, which he always disliked as there was no character in the strip actually named Peanuts. Um, and he <laughs> tried it various times to have it renamed Charlie Brown, but I was told it would be too expensive. So before that, the non-syndicated strip that ran in the Minneapolis Tribune and St. Paul Pioneer Press starting in June 1947, that was the precursor to Peanuts. Do you know what it was called, Wayne? I saw an interview with him once where he wanted to name a strip Peppermint Patty. He thought that would be a great name for a strip. Since his was called Peanuts and he didn't like it, he created the character Peppermint Patty so that no one else could take it. But the strip that preceded Peanuts was called Lil Folks. All right. I'll give you that bonus. So next one goes to Wayne and Steve trying to steal from Joe. All right. Mary Elizabeth McGlynn, also credited as Melissa Williamson, was until 2012 married to fellow voice actor Darren Norris. She's now engaged to another prolific voice actor, Stephen Blum, which is appropriate given that two decades ago she voiced Julia, the enigmatic love interest of a protagonist voiced by Stephen Blum in the English language version of what pioneering Japanimation series? Okay, so, yeah, this is anime-related. So, Julia, um, I'm pretty sure on this that Steve Bloom is the English voice of Spike Spiegel on Cowboy Bebop. And uh, there was a mysterious Julia that both uh, he and the main villain, Vicious, were in love with. So I think we can lock that in. Oh, and if you wanted the, se the series, so. right? You were asking yeah. for the series. Okay. The series. Yes, I'm pretty sure of that. So we can lock in Cowboy Bebop. 
All right, Cowboy Bebop, Spike Spiegel, the protagonist, voiced by Blum. At the time, they weren't in a relationship, but they eventually found each other. All right, so for the bonus for Joe, so I mentioned Darren Norris, uh, ex-husband of Mary Elizabeth McGlynn. He didn't, I think, voice any characters in the series Cowboy Bebop. He did voice Vincent, the antagonist, in Cowboy Bebop, the movie. Okay. But he has also had more embodied roles. I was going to say not voice roles, but he did use his voice in them, obviously. Um, but yes, yeah, so one, uh, perhaps maybe his most recognizable embodied role was as the public defender Cliff McCormack in a recurring role on what cult television series? Let's see, public defender. Well, it's not Night Court. Hey, let's see. It's a public defender, so question is, is it based around like a law practice or is it based around a judge uh i'll say la law I mean, those are good guesses to go down, but in this case, he was, as a public defender, often referring clients to a private detective firm mm. um, and was one of my favorite supporting characters. Excellent way with that witty Rob Thomas dialogue on Veronica Mars. Mm. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. So, Wayne and Joe trying to steal from Steve. Consider the following reminiscence. So here's a fairly long quote. I had just moved to L.A., and it was the first thing I booked when I got to town. We shot it over the Thanksgiving holiday, and it was one of the rare occasions when they didn't have a studio audience brought in. It was great fun. Jerry Stiller is maybe the funniest performer I've ever worked with. Everybody had a hard time keeping a straight face. Julia can't keep a straight face regardless, but you can find the bloopers from that season, and you will see her laughing her ass off around the festivist table. They were all really nice to me. It was a great gig, and for a broke-ass actor, which I was at the time... That thing paid off like a slot machine. I still get checks on that thing because they play it all the censored time. So that quote is taken from a 2019 Theater Mania interview with what Tony-winning actor and Pulitzer-winning playwright? Well, was Lin-Manuel Miranda ever on a Seinfeld? Uh, might have been a little before his time. Hmm. Someone that they would be interviewing in 2019. Right. Or maybe he would have been young. I don't know. Um, actually, hmm. but also he would have had to have gone to L.A. for some reason. Mm-hmm. Tony Pulitzer. So we got Miranda, Harvey Firestein. Did he get win a Tony and or a Pulitzer? Um, let's see. Yeah, but I think he was known enough in the. Movie. Oh yeah. Yeah, he wouldn't have been broke. Broke ass actor. Yes, his his hinder would not have been broke. Um, let's see. <sighs> I'm going to theater maven. Um, and someone that would be saying paid off like an effing slot machine. I mean, I'm not like familiar with any of the people that this could be. But I mean, you know, if, if you are, could you attribute someone saying that? Like, mm. I don't see Miranda's what I got. But I mean, do you picture him saying that phrase? Hmm. Yeah. Tony Pulitzer. Yeah, I'm trying to think of somebody else. Uh, yeah, not hmm. only did he say that, he said broke ass actor. <laughs> <laughs> just starting out maybe he could have could see him saying that i don't know um da, 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 da. i'm trying to think anybody else uh who did rent i mean rent broke a few years after like late 90s so if this was like an earlier mm, i think he was festivus was mentioned and that was later yeah. in the series so that would have been around 97 Right, right around 2000 or so. I think uh, the writer for Rent has passed away. Um, and, and Rent broke in, like, 97 anyway. Yeah, yeah. So. been filming Festivus after Rent yeah. got or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I don't know. I guess we'd go with Miranda. I can't think of anything else. Um, Is that what you're locking in? Yeah, I got nothing else. Okay, I'm locking in. Locking in Lin-Manuel Miranda. All right, pass it over to Steve. All right, so um, I guess I didn't hear Festivus mention. I now know what scene they're talking about. At first, I thought it was, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the episode, I rarely do, where um, Jerry had been forced into bootlegging a film, and then George took over that job because he wanted to seem dangerous to the girl he was dating that worked for the Yankees. And uh, Was that when the little kicks? Because that was Elaine kicks. Yes, when she... that is the little kicks because the bootleg ends up being the video of Elaine dancing, the movie Cry, Cry Again. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's the scene at the end of that where uh, she's fighting with Frank Costanza and it's like, you know, I'll drop you like a bag of dirt. And I've seen the outtakes of that where that took like 20 takes. Julia's famous for corpsing. She can't keep a straight face with someone like a Jerry Stiller. So I know it is now the strike, the Festivus episode. And I know the scene. It's when they're at the Festivus dinner and she asks about her horse and the one guy says uh, he had to be shot. And I've seen, like, Julia take 30 takes to get through that. So I'm sure it's that guy, but I I don't know his name. The other guy with him was apparently some guy that did, like, a local access show where he reviewed adult movies. He looks like a really skeevy guy. And in the behind-the-scenes stuff on the Seinfeld DVDs, they talk about that, yeah, he did some sort of public access X-rated review show. So I'm guessing that it has to be the guy next to him whose name I don't know. Daniel Von Bargen is in that episode, too, but he's in more than one episode. I do believe somebody who's only in that episode, and I think I'm thinking of the right one, it's it's one of the kids in the hall. So since I have no idea who the other one is, I think it's Scott McDonald who's in that episode as the guy with the denim vest, who that would be his only episode in it. And he might have been a struggling actor at the time, though I feel like kids in the hall already existed. So even though I think it's wrong, I'll say Scott McDonald. Right. Yeah, what's that? There was a Scott Thompson in there. Um, It might be Thompson, yeah. But it's not that. It's it's one of the other actors, right? Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was... Was the Denver guy? Was that Kevin McDonald? Yeah, I think it is Kevin something. Something, yeah. I don't remember. But anyway, none of the the kids are all very talented, um, but none of them won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, this is someone who had had many of his own plays staged on Broadway, and especially in the past few years has become very successful following uh, winning a Pulitzer and I think Tony for Best Play, but also had a separate career as an actor. I think production that started in Chicago moved to Broadway. He played George in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and actually his real-life wife, Carrie Coon, who he met through that production. I think she actually played Honey, not Martha, because, yeah, George and Martha falling in love with each other during that production is a little hard to imagine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But yeah, he has had a bit of revival in his acting career as well, being in key supporting roles in four Best Picture nominees in the past three years. Um, He was two of Greta Gerwig's films, Little Women and Lady Bird. He had a supporting role. He was also in The Post and played Henry Ford the second Mm -hmm. Ford versus Ferrari. And his name is Tracy Letts. Okay, Tracy Letts. And it is the character I'm thinking of, right? He's the guy who says he had to be shot. Yeah. Yeah, the strike is definitely the episode, the the one that introduced Festivus. Yeah, it's him. It's the other guy at the betting window who comes to the Festivus dinner. Yeah. (laughs) Great scene. All right. So now Steve and Joe to steal from Wayne. It takes very high levels of grit and intrinsic motivation to be a successful race car driver. So fans of nominative determinism might not be surprised by a certain Australian's triumph in the 2014 IndyCar series and the 2018 Indianapolis 500. It's now or never. What's his name? So nominative determinism, someone whose name is champion or winner, we would think. 
It's now or never. And it's now or never. So it's now or never. It could be that song, but it could be something else. Who did that song? Do you know? Or when's it from? Didn't Elvis sing it? I'm what? embarrassed. If he didn't, I'm embarrassing myself. But didn't Elvis sing that? Or... Oh, yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So Graceland. Uh, there was a band called Triumph. There is. I'm thinking like nominative determinism. So I'm thinking somebody whose name is winner or champion or something like that or champ. And if it's now or never thing is, are we looking at like Elvis winner or champ Presley or something like that? Well, what movies was he in? King Kid Galahad. Uh... They said this is an Australian guy who won two races. Oh yeah, one series and one. Oh, one series. Okay. Um, I feel like there might be a racer who's named Champ. I might be completely making that up, but I don't know any winners besides Reality Winner, the, mm-hmm. the government worker that got in trouble at some point. I don't think it's much of a popular last name, but like Champ as a nickname, is plenty of people have it. And if now or never is an Elvis clue, it could also be like Elvis Champion, because Champion's a real last name also. But um, mm. which of those sounds more plausible to you, Elvis Champion or Champ Presley? I guess I don't know Champ Presley has a ring to it. <laughs> it does. That was the thing. It kind of sounds real. It's, it sounds like it could be something. Elvis Champion seems a little too on the nose. Like, not that there aren't people who have names that are that on the nose, you know. And yeah, since if I don't say otherwise, for real people, last name only is generally acceptable. So you don't have to worry about coming oh, up okay. with it. okay. So yeah, so we could, if we think it's something Presley, we could say Presley. If we think it's something Champion, we could say Champion or Winner. So what do you want to roll with? Uh, what the heck? Let's do Presley. All right. We'll lock in Presley. All right, Wayne? I gotta say, listening to you guys try and figure that out, it took a lot of willpower for me not to say anything. <laughs> yeah, this guy has a comedian for a brother who makes fun of his brother's name. The IndyCar racer is Will Power. Oh. So nice. the song I was referencing is not Elvis mm. Presley's It's Our Nap, which I think has, takes its melody from O Soleil Mio. Yeah. Um, I was referencing Gary Puckett and the Union Gap song Lady Willpower. Willpower, okay. But his name is, in fact, Will Power. Will Power. Mm. Sounds like it should be Homer Simpson's alias. Now that was Max. Die incognito. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And now Wayne and Steve to steal from Joe. So the primary characters in John Boy's 17776 called 910 and Juice are meant to be real life space probes Pioneer 9, Pioneer 10, and the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer or Juice. So that latter probe is set to be launched by the European Space Agency in 2022. It's primarily intended to study which three of Jupiter's Galilean moons. So um, this is basically just choose one that we think doesn't make sense. So let's write them down. So it's Europa, Io, Ganymede, and um, might have to be the one that I, if I don't remember the fourth one, do you know the one? Those Io, Europa. No, um, those are the three uh, I can always name. Is it? Andromeda? No, the Andromeda is like a galaxy. I don't yeah, think. Yeah, there's an Andromeda galaxy. I'm trying to think. They're all. Um, what would that have to do with John Boy 1776? They're, they're all people that relate to the mythical Zeus slash Jupiter. I know. So like Gandhi oh. was his cupbearer. So I think that the mythical Andromeda would have been more related to is it Perseus or Bellerophon who saves her? I think Perseus, but like Bellerophon saves a different girl from a different monster. So what is the last one? 
Because it's, yeah, it's, um, well, in Cowboy Bebop, yeah. the war is on Ganymede, I believe. <laughs> so that doesn't help because that's one that I already know. Here's I mean, the way I like thinking about something like this sometimes. When you think about this probe is going to study the moons, there's one of two reasons. One is whatever's at this moon that they want to see. And the other would be for their publicity and funding. They don't necessarily want to send something to something nobody's heard of. It could be, though. I think that I don't think I'm necessarily blanking on the most obscure one. I think I'm blanking on just I think they're all of relative similar. Well, actually, wait, is um, Titan's not a moon of Jupiter, right? That's Saturn. That's Saturn. Yeah. Yeah. But like Ganymede, I'm thinking everybody's. Heard Everybody's of. heard of Ion Ganymede for the most part, and Europa. And we have to name three here. So we, we have to name three, so we might just have to go with the three we have. I'm, I'm really trying to pull that fourth one, because I should just... This is such stock trivia, again, uh, you know, Galilean moons. It's This is just something you're supposed to know at this level. Yeah. Um, uh, crap. Ion Ganymede, Europa, and... Um, not someone from the Tempest or something, is it? No, I think all of them are like. Actually, they all might be moons of Jupiter, but of the no, I think they're all like moons of Saturn because Saturn has the ridiculous amount. Oh, they both do. I they, mean, they both do. Yeah. Actually, but, I think like Uranus just passed Jupiter for the most moons or something like that. They all I, have a crazy amount, I know, and there you very few people know all of them, but, but people do know all four Galilean moons. So. Um, I did say earlier in the game Uranus only has 27 known moons. So I think it was Saturn that passed Jupiter. Okay. Yeah, they both have a lot. Um, but Io can... Well, Io would make sense because that's the one with all the volcanoes, right? I think and so. We're always looking for water. So yeah. is one of them an ice planet? I, be- I know, I'm pretty sure one of the four is one of those places where it's like, oh, we think there might be water, ice here. So it would make sense to go probe that as well. Yeah. Now, I don't know which one it is. <laughs> um... Trying to also think of like other people that were mythologically related with Jupiter, but there's a lot because you know there's the many, many, many women he impregnated. We're looking at water, fire, and what about like a gas that might be in the atmosphere of one of the moons that uh, we might want to mine the gas for some reason? Oh, I think if we can't pull the last Galilean moon, we're just gonna go with the three we I have got written down. <laughs> Probably. All right, do we want to just go with that? Yeah, since we can't even right. come up with the other name anyway. Under pressure, I'm not pulling the fourth. So we're just going to say Io, Ganymede, and Europa. All right, you're locking in Io, Ganymede, and Europa, you said? Yes. Okay, Joe? Okay, this is kind of a tricky one. Um, the four moons, the Galilean moons, the big ones are Io, starting from Jupiter, moving out, are Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. Callisto, oh, okay, there's one. Now... You've got the name of the probe, which is Juice, in that it's supposed to be Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer. Now that it uses an acronym that kind of sounds like Jupiter Io Callisto Europa, but Io is that moon, it's the one that looks like a pizza. It's completely volcanic, it's getting pulled between Jupiter on one side and the other three moons of the other. Its terrain changes on a yearly basis. Uh, there's actual rock la- or you know, lava lava there and sulfur compounds and whatnot. It's not really icy. It's all sulfur and sulfur dioxide, whereas Europa has the icy surface, and then under that there's probably a liquid water ocean, but there's ice on top. Uh, Ganymede, more ice, and then Callisto has been pretty much frozen solid for several billion years. Based on that, my knowledge of planetology, I would have to go, if it's an icy moon explorer, I would have to guess Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, and if 
yeah, we'll just go with that. So, so much of being good at quizzing is zeroing in on the proper information, sort of separating out relevant from irrelevant. So, yes, um, in juice, the two letters there that are IC, standing for icy. So, when it comes to eliminating one of the four Galilean moons, the one that's volcanic is exactly the one that should be eliminated. So, the three that are left over, as you said, Ganymede, Callisto, and Europa. Okay, because I'd hate to have written a complaint yeah. letter to the ESA about yeah. that. So is JUICE, the acronym starts with a G then? No, uh, oh, the J is Jupiter. Okay. Oh, just Jupiter. Yeah, Jupiter, Icy Moon, Explorer. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that one goes to Joe. And now the next question will go to Wayne and Joe, trying to steal from Steve. Dr. John was in the right place at the wrong time, but in 1920, a second baseman nicknamed Wombi was in the right place at the right time to record the only unassisted triple play in World Series history. Correctly spell his surname. H-I-S-S-U-R-N-A-M-E. Okay, yeah. You. <laughs> I don't think he's going to fall for it. Probably not. <laughs> I think he has to do exactly. Well, we'll tolerate a certain amount of rules lawyering, but no more. <laughs> Okay, one yeah, day. Anytime I have a chance to make two choices, I always make the wrong one. But I would say there's an H in there <laughs> if you're going to go with a WH sound. Hmm. Wombi. I'll give you, I'm not sure if it's Wambi or Wombi, but I will give you the nickname spelling, W-A-M-B-Y. Hmm. So it'd be Wambisky? Are you thinking like there's a longer name that he has? Like, yeah. Wazachowski or something. Oh, Wambisky. Yeah, all I know of this is the... Uh, 1920 World Series unassisted triple play was on a Trivial Pursuit Genesis Edition card. <laughs> you don't have anything else? <laughs> do you have any preferred spelling, or do you want me to go ahead and uh, have at it? If you want to go ahead and take a spelling guess, you go for it. <laughs> okay, sure, I'll take this one. Uh, one second here. Okay, W-A-M-B-I-C-Z-S-K-I. All right, well, you had the first few letters right there. Hmm. Steve? All right, so his last name is Wamsgans or Wamsbegans, or people say it a lot of different ways. It is a very hard name, but yes, Wambi is, is Bill Wamsgans. Um, my uncle writes Cleveland Indians books. I believe he's interviewed Wambi's granddaughter, who might have changed her name at some point. <laughs> I think or got married to somebody else, so she doesn't have to spell this name anymore. Um, I'm usually pretty good at spelling hard-to-spell baseball last names, and I've been looking at the two I wrote down. I'm pretty sure it's one of these two and i'll go with the one that i know it's the one that looks worse but i think it's the one that's right so i believe it is w a m b s g a n s s yeah that weird double consonant halfway through and then another double consonant at the end it's really hard to know how to pronounce but yeah w a m b s g a n s s is correct what was the other variation you had so curiosity Oh, it was G-A-N-N-S. I was thinking, does it end in the two S's? And I was pretty sure it does, because I'm like, that's the one that looks weirder. And I remember in spelling it for quizzes and stuff, it's like, yeah, it, it looks odd. It looks like you wouldn't know how to pronounce it. So Yeah, it looks odd, but I, I remember it kind of divides neatly into two separate five-letter words. So. It does. That is good that it's WAMS and then GANS. And if you can remember how to spell both of those, you're good. All right, so three points for Steve. And now next one goes to Steve and Joe trying to steal from Wayne. Jackie Childs on Seinfeld. <laughs> Drew 
on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Marshall Matt Dillon on Gunsmoke. The actors portraying those characters are all linked via close family relations to what classic TV series? Okay, so um, Jackie Childs is played by Philip Morris. So is this a TV series that was sponsored by cigarette companies, maybe, or has another connection through that? Do you know the name of either other... It was Drusilla on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and... Matt Dillon, was that... Matt Dillon. Oh, right. Who, yeah, was that, was that Dillon? James Arnest? No. Uh, no. Was it James Arnest? No, that was Gunsmoke, you're right. Yeah, Matt Dillon. Oh, this is, gun, this is Gunsmoke, sorry. Yeah, this is Gunsmoke, yeah. yeah. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture that thinks he's Matt Dillon. Mm. So I should, because Gunsmoke's pretty famous. I don't think I know Marshall Matt Dillon's actor's name, but I know for sure that I Jackie Charles is Philip Morris. Okay, I think it's James Arnes for uh, for Matt Dillon, uh, Marshall Dillon. Drusilla, dude, uh, is she? Uh, Tara Reid, uh, Morris... James Ernest Drusilla. Who's Drusilla? Was she? Um, and we're looking for these being like a family relation to a, a classic show. So my initial thing of thinking it would look like a cigarette promoted thing is probably wrong because Arnest is not a cigarette brand. But we've got Morris and we've got Philip and James, I guess. So we're trying to figure out who Drusilla is. Because um, if it is, let's see. What's her name? Tara. No, Tara's a character. Except the actress. This one, I'm, I'm definitely not going to know this actress, I don't think, because I'm not a Whedonverse guy. I don't know Buffy, so. Okay. Is it something, could still be the cigarette thing if it's something Winston. Because I'm thinking of other cigarettes. Mm-hmm. But Philip Morris, is a, Philip Morris is a company. Cigarette should. Yeah. Winston's a brand. I don't think there were ever Philip Morris cigarettes. They have brands like Marlboro, yeah. I think. Like, yeah, Winston's a brand. Right, right. Uh, but a classic TV show where we've got probably a Philip and a James and an Arnis and a Morris. If it was cigarettes, what's the most famous show that was like sponsored by lots of cigarette companies? One uh, of the, the theater- Flintstones was uh, advertised by Winston. Winston, yeah, Winston yeah. was Flintstones for sure. Um, but Drusilla, she was a villain. Yeah, getting a third name would definitely help because otherwise, outside of like a cigarette thing, I I don't like a one of the old famous shows like Morris or, or Arnis or James means is not coming up to me like it's not the Honeymooners. You know, there's no Ralph Cramden or Art Kearney there, so it's mm-hmm. not. Not like Sid Caesar, your show of shows or something. Well, Philip uh, Morris, didn't they, they sponsored more than one show, I think. Yeah, yeah, they certainly would have sponsored more than one. So it could be one of those type things or, you know, well, not Texaco Star Theater because that would have been Texaco, but like a your show of shows type thing or one of those hour long theater. Type yeah, it was like the, it was, the title was like the Philip Morris da 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 da. Hour, yeah. Or yeah, something. like the Camel Cavalcade. News, Camel News Caravan back then. Uh, Drusilla. Oh, maybe, maybe something that's spun off from one of those or I don't, I don't really know if spinoffs happened back then from those kind of shows but uh, I don't know if like did the Honeymooners or something come from one of those variety shows at first and became its own thing or I, I feel like that was its own show at first but there could be another show you know like uh, what are our other super classic sitcoms around the Honeymooners you've got like Hazel I think Goldbergs. Dick Van Dyke is, is later than that right the Dick Van Dyke yeah, a little bit, 60s, later. yeah. 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 Um, that earlier looking at like My Mother the Car <laughs> was that when the Waltons was maybe or no uh, that's seventies that was seventies okay Mr Red Toby Gillis that was later too though actually sure. I could believe that the Honeymooners was sponsored by three different companies, with one of them being Philip Morris or something like that. Or if we would prefer to go with like, like you said, Comedy Cavalcade or your show shows or one of those variety hour shows. 
Yeah. Would, would you? So these three shows, the actors have a. Fam- Could you repeat fam- that? I guess Yogesh. What um, exactly the relationship is? I am three characters. So the actors portraying those characters are all linked via close family relations to what classic TV series? Oh, okay. Oh, so the act. Okay. So it's the actors. So yeah. what about? Uh, that's why I was thinking Philip Morris. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So James Arness, Philip Morris, someone else named Arness. Hmm. TV show. What classic TV show? Um, when was like My Three Sons? Was that around that time or is that later? Uh, I think it was a little later. Okay. I mean, yeah, classic I, is. I'm not. I don't mean golden age necessarily. Okay, classic just yeah. you know, a generation before us. Yes. Okay. Related, so, related yeah. to Felix the Cat Doll from the 1927 test broadcast. Yeah, it's, not, <laughs> it's not like Philo T. Farnsworth. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we don't necessarily need to be constrained to like. I don't know if there's any other. I, maybe there's something later. Yeah. It could be the Flintstones. That's. Then, if, we're, if we're looking at this, it's certainly classic. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're, we're talking about the actors though. So. Yeah. So the James Arnett, Philip Morris. And some third person actress I, three, yeah, yes. contestant number three. And um, the show somehow close familial relation or close family too. Uh, yeah, well, my three sons had Fred McMurray. Uh, I don't know if they were related at all, but to be honest, I don't know. Probably just go with something that had a Morris. It, since we at least know the James Arnest and Philip Morris either had a Morris as an actor or a Morris as a character in it, so right, Philip Morris, Morris the Cat, uh, Trisha Charquette. Uh, Think of Reed. Let's just go with I don't know. I mean, and family relations. Uh, we're not into the hardest round quite yet, so you might want to give some time for the uh, other okay. round. With, you want to just go with my three sons then? Because I honestly sure. can't do anything else. Sure, it, it could be something like that, yeah. Let's okay. go with that. My three sons. All right. All right. Wayne, you've had quite a bit of time to, to think about this. <laughs> Has it helped you? What helped me most was when they said Philip Morris. <laughs> and then you guys went in the wrong direction if I think this is where this is going. I was a big Buffy fan. I wish I could tell you who played Drusilla. There was a Morris on a show that I know very well. I'm pretty sure there was a Morris. And the biggest part, the hardest part for someone to pull out, James Arness. And I didn't know this until his brother died. I'm pretty sure that I read his brother when he died is Peter Graves. So if Peter Graves is the brother of James Arness and then you've got a Morris in there as well, Morris and Graves were on Mission Impossible. And that's what I'm going to go with. Uh, right. MST3K fans will remember him as Peter Graves from the University of Minnesota. But um, Arness with a U was the family name. James changed it very slightly. Peter changed it quite a bit to become Peter Graves. Phil Morris is the son of Greg Morris. And Drusilla on Buffy was played by a very striking looking woman named Juliet Landau combined her mother's beauty and her father's very um, somewhat odd looks but she is the daughter of Martin Landau and Barbara Bain and all four of those people Peter Graves Martin Landau Barbara Bain Greg Morris the classic they were really only together for a couple seasons but they are the classic lineup along with Peter Lupus of Mission Impossible the IMF. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. I remember Martin Landau and Barbara Bain, I think were in Space 1999, but that's not quite as classic. Yeah, they were, <laughs> so both, in, they were both in Space 1999, and they were also both in the Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island. Uh, <laughs> there you the go. Most notable of all. So that was my second choice. <laughs> 
That's it. I'm right, doing the so... challenge rank. No. <laughs> no. All right. Last one of this round before we're going on to the super hard round will be Wayne and Steve trying to steal from Joe. All right. Known as the man of a thousand voices due to his amazingly prolific voiceover work, the late Paul Fries also directed a low-budget teensploitation crime drama. Speaking of MST3K, notable uh, pretty much only for being mocked in an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000 and for its title being one of the first high-profile uses of what then-trendy slang term. This term was coined in 1958 by Herb Kane in his column in the San Francisco Chronicle and may have been influenced by a newsworthy event from the year before. Okay, so MST3K making fun of it, but it was a show, so they probably made fun of it in... Hey, it was a movie. Oh, this was a movie. Okay, so yeah. MST... Well, I love MST3K, but there's no way I remember every movie they mocked. But that might... If we hover around this, maybe it'll eventually spring out, because I have seen quite a bit of MST3K. So yeah, I haven't, but what I'm looking at there is it would have been a... 57, like, no, notable of teen exploitation, so... Okay, um, so you've got that, and you've got something that happened in 1957. Wasn't that the year Sputnik was launched? Uh, yeah, so maybe, like, far out, or... No, that's... I mean, well, it is, so... That's it's like a bad, because, I mean, so, it takes time for it to get going, and then, you know, it gains traction in the 60s. My first thought was Hang 5. So, the question is looking for for the movie, right? Or are we looking for the phrase? No, we're looking for the phrase. We are looking for the phrase. Okay. And the phrase has... Phrases back then, you got like Daddy-O, Hang 5, Far Out. I like, you know, I could easily see a movie that was something far out and Sputnik, yeah, it's out there. So, you know, that is certainly, if television and movies don't lie to me, they couldn't possibly. That is how people talked back then, right? Even people like my parents would have been far that out embarrassing. Far out really came more with the hippies in the 60s. But 60s? Say yeah, it. someone someone had to coin it. Um, right. And I, I don't think it's like groovy or anything like that either, um, which I think, because groovy, I feel like comes from records and groovy grooves and records and stuff. I might be completely wrong with that etymology, but that's always what I thought it was, even though it is very much considered like a, a 60s word. I like Far Out. I mean, it, it, it is it a slang thing and something, so and it makes sense to be sort of related to Sputnik, so you good with going with that? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, how many other phrases are we going to come up with where we can put yeah. 1957 in it? Sure. We'll go with Far Out. Alright, you're locking in Far Out? Yes. Joe? Okay. Well, mad props to Paul Fries, <laughs> one of the greats. If you ever watch War of the Worlds, he's the broadcaster who's sitting on top of the van when they try to nuke the Martians and it doesn't work. Very distinctive voice. Done a lot of Disney stuff. I think he did the announcements for Disneyland for a while and then Corey Feldman, I think, uh, one of the Corys, took over does it now. I did not know he directed the movie then, but I think I know what it is. I was kind of afraid when you we called up Sputnik, but I think the word they're looking for was combining both Sputnik and the beat movement, and I think the movie, if I remember correctly, one of the MST3K movies was the Beatniks. Trying to eat some peanuts I got from Five Guys yesterday in the background, and then <laughs> dust entered my voice box, so... <coughs> to expel it. All right, so as soon as Wayne said Sputnik, I thought that this question was going to fall uh, to the Steelers, because uh, you got half of it, basically. Yeah. Hit. But then you moved away from that, and so it, it went to Joe, and he's right. The movie was called The Beatniks, and the, the term Beatnik. So that one, again, goes to Joe, and we will end this round, I believe, fairly close together scores now. Steve, 22.0, Wayne, 21.1, Joe, 19.2. All right. <laughs> Uh, we go into now the final round, the super hard round, and now the questions will be worth six points as a steal, five points as a specialist, and we'll start with Wayne and Joe trying to steal from Steve. 
1994 book by sports writer Terry Pluto popularized the notion that the Cleveland Indians have been cursed ever since general manager Frank Lane's decision to trade what popular outfielder in 1960, despite a 1959 season that saw him hit 42 home runs, including an incredible four consecutive home runs in a game against the Orioles. A new GM did eventually get this player back to Cleveland in 1965, but in the process gave up pitcher Tommy John, who it turned out had a few more good decades left in him, and future rookie of the year Tommy Agee. Hmm. Before my time, for sure. Trying to think of Cleveland players. <laughs> 42 home runs in 1959. I don't know that that was uh, exactly a low number, so you'd think we'd uh, know this guy a little better. <sighs> okay. Do you have any idea? No, I got nothing. I mean, we're looking at four home runs yeah. probably in one game because it was four consecutive at-bats and 42 in, in the year 59. I'm, I know very not a lot about <laughs> That in, in section, that, but sorry. In that time, you like in that season, wasn't that around the time you had like uh, Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris chasing each other? And if 42 is a number that's kind of big, even then, mm. you know, was there a third guy in the race for a little bit that might bring up your memory? Well, the only thing I could think of is one name that I might not even have right. I think I read it and it was like an article in Smithsonian Magazine. Uh, it was like something just kind of different. Uh, but if you have anything, I'm going to toss it out there. I think the last thing was Easter. So let's go with Easter. You want to lock that in? I got nothing, so it's <laughs> that's up to you. Sure, yeah. All right, Steve? Well, uh, Luke Easter is a player that was on the Indians teams of those days. If he came up in Smithsonian Magazine, it's probably because I think he was one of the few guys to play in the Negro Leagues after that, yeah, that's integration. Yeah. He, yeah. And he also played until he was really old in the Pacific Coast League. Mm. Like, he played until his 40s and was still a huge mm. home run hitter. Mm. Uh, I know Bill James has said that he thinks that if Luke Easter had his career over again, mm. he'd have hit 500 home runs, that he was mm. supremely talented. This book, which I own, I, th- I think this is a player that other teams fans would know, but not necessarily a superstar. Very well known for being the favorite player of Indians fans at the time. He was traded for Harvey Keene, who was an all-star shortstop. It was not... Not necessarily a terrible trade from a personnel perspective. The 59 team also had Terry Francona's dad, Tito, on it, who hit very well. They kind of had four outfielders, and they might have thought this guy was expendable for that. The manager was, general manager was Frank Lane, who is known as Trader Frank Lane. D, not A-I-T. Uh, he traded a lot of <laughs> players. And one of those players was this player, which is Rocky Calavito. And the curse that was, I guess, broken in 94-95 when we got over 500 and then made the playoffs is called The Curse of Rocky Calavito, which is also the name of the book. Very impressive, yeah. I think the season before that, Harvey Kuhn was the um, batting champion and Calavito was the home run champion. So Yeah, Keen was a great player, and he might be more well-known now if you know that the 82 Brewers, who were the great offense, were known as Harvey's Wallbangers, and he's the Harvey in question. He was a manager of that team. Uh, But yeah, it is infamous in Indians lore. I think it was coincidental. I don't think that caused it, but the team sucked for another 30 years, and they were so bad that they made the movie Major League about them, so... All right. Excellent information. Now we'll just move on to Steve and Joe. Drenstil from Wayne. This one's going to require a bit of thinking, possibly, or, or you might just know it right away. Who knows? Who was a credited regular on both the series that topped the nationwide Nielsen ratings for the 1967-68 TV season and the different series that topped the nationwide Nielsen ratings for the 1976-77 season? You said credited regular, so somebody who would have been in the... Okay, someone who's a main character, at least. 
Yeah, I'm not sure someone who appeared on the shows, but yeah, it was yeah, a, a regular. Character. A regular. Okay, so let's try to think. 67, 68, what are we thinking top-rated Nielsen mm. kind of shows would be around then? I have kind of an idea. Okay. Except I'm trying to remember his name, darn it. Uh, or the, <laughs> no, that, well, oh yeah, okay. I think maybe. 67, 68, I'm, well, I'm thinking maybe Harry Morgan, because okay. 67, 68 would have been Dragnet, and 76, 77 would have been MASH. Okay, I've definitely heard the name Harry Morgan. That, that yeah, is, he was that the, is a real person. Yeah, and Mash, he was the colonel, the kind of flinty guy who replaced the guy whose helicopter crashed. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, Dragnet, he was the chief, or the not chief, but a captain, I think. He was uh, Joe Friday's boss. Okay. If he's uh, not partner. And those definitely sound like, you know, Mash absolutely would have been the top-rated show for, mm-hmm. for a lot of its seasons, I'm sure. And uh, Dragnet, super popular. I can't imagine it wouldn't have led the Nielsen ratings a few times. I I don't have much to add to that. That sounds good. And I certainly do not have an alternative. I was trying to think of like people that might have been on like a show and then the spinoff of that show. But I think that's knowing Yogesh. I don't know if he would want to do something that connected easily. And I also couldn't think of which show and spinoff would work quite that way. Yeah, I was kind of thinking of popular shows of the 70s and working my way back. Who's in those that were? And if it was a spinoff, you might have them playing the same character, which then means, you know, this is going to be a different character. So I like your guess. Let's go with that okay and the only thing i well anything else no that wouldn't be it no i was thinking ed asner for a moment with lou grant and mary tyler moore but i think mary tyler moore was after 67 68 so yeah and it okay. also well i was saying that it wasn't said that they were different characters i'm just i'm thinking that for it to be difficult he'd probably want them to be different characters and you know was ed asner was playing the same but no i i like your answer. okay go with harry morgan all right locking in harry morgan yes yeah, that's very good thinking. I discovered in my research, actually, that... So Harry Morgan was also sometimes credited as Henry Morgan. There was actually a different Henry Morgan who was a humorist who was a regular on My World and Welcome to It. Uh, <laughs> nice. Played a character modeled on Robert Benchley in that. Oh, um, who, nice. did, who did, as, as you said, work for The New Yorker. That um, was my backup guy for yeah. James Thurber. Right. But anyway, sorry, that's not quite relevant. So I'll uh, pass this over to Wayne. Interesting thoughts you guys had there. MASH was from 72 to 83 on CBS. It would have been blocked from the number one Nielsen spot by All in the Family for five years. <clears throat> Dallas in its later years and maybe another show here or there to throw in. But one show that would have blocked it from being number one, especially 76, 77, would be Happy Days. Okay. And when you go back to 67, 68, if you just asked me that year, I would have thought Laugh-In was number one. But I'm going to guess in this case, Andy Griffith show. So Andy Griffith and Happy Days, we're going to say Ron Howard. Yeah, 67, 68 was actually the final season for the Andy Griffith, Andy show. Griffith show. Okay. Although it was kind of reinvented as Mayberry RFD for a few more years after that. But um, there aren't very many shows that are number one in their final season. And there are even fewer that are only number one in their final season. So uh, that's an odd distinction that the Andy Griffith show had, because it was in fact, it's only time in the number one slot for the year was in its final season. Mm. And yeah, uh, little Ronnie Howard played mm. uh, B. Taylor on that, and then he played Richie Cunningham on Happy Days. Was it a victim of the Rural Purge? Well, Mayberry RF. so the Rural Purge was early 70s, so oh, Mayberry, okay. yeah, Mayberry RFD was cancelled because of that, but Andy Griffith show had already gone off the air. Okay. I think basically did you, guys, did you say rural purge i guess that's not something i'd ever heard of but it makes sense that like every show end up being based in a city after like a certain point in 1970 or something yeah, yeah. they were 
CBS had yeah. Green Acres and Andy Griffiths. Yeah, Green Acres, Green Acres and all that stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. They said, let's direct to. And they were still living in cities. Yeah, they were still doing well. It wasn't like they had all yeah. bombed in the ratings. It's just, you know. Yeah, but, I mean, the ratings of Beverly Hillbillies are like the most massive of anything ever. For a long time, if you looked at the most, I think even now, if you look at the list of like the most watched episodes of TV series, you'll have the final episode of MASH, Who Shot JR of Dallas, regular Beverly Hillbillies, regular Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> That was such massive ratings of like, we'll never be seen again. But it, there was a whole kind of Hooterville trilogy there because the same showrunner was given uh, Petticoat Junction and Green Acres as well. But yeah, they all got purged around 70, 71. All right. So now Wayne and Steve trying to steal from Joe. All right. The title character of Harlan Ellison's short story, Jefty is Five, about a boy who never grows up, was inspired by what child, the son of one of Ellison's friends, who grew up to portray Boner on Growing Pains before tragically committing suicide in 2010? Contrary to what non-fans might think, this person's father did not appear in the Ellison-scripted TV episode City on the Edge of Forever. Okay, so somebody who sounds like a person that was in that Star Trek episode. But otherwise, uh, I feel like you'd know this more than me, Wayne. Who played Boner? That seems like yeah, a, that's I was just a, reading about it last month, too. L- little before my time. Doesn't mean I shouldn't know it, but yeah, the actual name was Stabone. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay, yes. But uh, yeah, and he was. There's a connection to Star Trek with his father. Yeah, they were saying that contrary and, to popular belief. So either somebody whose name sounded like his father or the urban myth had been that his father was in City on the Edge Tomorrow, which I'm not a big Star Trek fan, but I know that episode. It's quite famous. Yeah, I, this is one of those times where uh, any other day I'd probably pull his name out without thinking about it. And I don't think that name's going to happen today. I certainly don't know. It's like, if you got I, anything rooting around up there, I'd just throw it out because I can't. Let's this. go with Lucky Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> we could, sure. Let's throw out a Lucky Johnson. Sure. I mean, if, if we want to, like, uh, say the Star Trek thing does have any merit at all. Do we want to say a last oh. name of a Star Trek regular? I mean, it's certainly not going to be Shatner, but do we think it might be, like... No, things um, like Sulu, Kelly? Uh, Chekhov, or, or one of those guys. Somebody whose name is Ke- last name is Kelly, DeForest Kelly, I don't know. Uh, they're not they're not that many Takais either or Nichols. Actually Nichols is not an uncommon name. Um I don't Nichols, think but who played Chekhov? Um that I'm not sure because DeForest Kelly was Scotty. Um I don't remember <laughs> who played Chekhov. Uh, DeForest Kelly was Bones. Or no, you're right, yeah. DeForest Kelly was Bones. Uh was it Walter Walter King? Walter- Caning, Caning. Yeah, Walter that's Caning is, is, is none of this probably matters because it's probably not going to be a main, <laughs> main actor. No, no, go, I, go with. But his I should. I I remember Walter Caning now from that Red Letter Media episode currently, where like he was a really old bored detective. <laughs> And stuff so it's like through his eyes it was called or something and uh he really hates people bringing it up for him to sign <laughs> or hate it I, I think he might not be around anymore do we want to go with one of the star trek cast names so like well, kelly or that's the, that's the connection oh it is yeah okay do we want the same exact last name but i think that's the guy that he's connected to or is rumored oh. to be okay so then yeah let's go with that uh we'll go with koenig then all right locking in koenig and again yeah last names alone are acceptable for real people so you don't have to get anything more than that joe 
Yeah, it's that character. It said, uh, I remember the actor had joked that uh, there was another episode. Uh, did you mention Space Seed? No. Okay, that was the one with Khan, and there was a joke where, because they met up in the second Star Trek movie in 1982, but they hadn't met in that episode, and his joke was that they met in the bathroom, so um, uh, how they interacted, but yeah, he wasn't in that one, but yeah, the father's name was Walter Koenig, it was was the actor, I think the son was Gordon Koenig. As a child, so when Harlan Ellison knew him, he was called Josh. As he grew up as a professional name, he used Andrew. But yeah, so Chekhov was introduced as a character in the second season of Star Trek to kind of capitalize on the youth man. He was very much kind of a clone of Davy Jones from the Monkees. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, non-fans might not realize that he's actually absent from all first season episodes of Star Trek, although presumably the character was still around because how could he have gotten on the Enterprise in the middle of its mission? <laughs> yeah. Work the night shift. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and yeah. George Takai was filming the Green Berets also, so he ah. wasn't available as much. That's why they brought him in to drive the right. ship. Yeah, that was, this is exactly what this podcast is about. Those moments where people who aren't the experts can kind of uh, reason and stumble their way into the answer. So, um, yeah, Koenig is absolutely correct. Nice, okay. <laughs> that is fun. I completely <laughs> know very little about this, but... All right. So now for Wayne and Joe trying to steal from Steve. So although Jerry and George's parents were significant recurring characters on Seinfeld, we only saw Elaine's father in a single episode, season two's The Jacket. So what legendary tough guy actor who reportedly was not asked back after he stole a butcher knife from the set and jokingly pulled it on Jerry Seinfeld portrayed Alton Bennis? Despite a reputation for being antisocial and extremely difficult to work with, this man was so in demand that even at the tail end of his life in the 90s, both Quentin Tarantino and Michael Bay went out of their way to pursue him for cameos in respectively Reservoir Dogs and Armageddon. And one last clue, he originally broke through with the title role in the low-budget gangster film Dillinger in 1945, the same year that a glamorous Hollywood actress who was unrelated to him but had the same surname gave her career best performance as the psychopathic Yandere Ellen Baron Tarland. <laughs> Yandere, I like that. <laughs> hmm. I think I have an idea of who it is, but I can't think of his name. Mm-hmm. The guy from Sea Hunt? Lloyd Bridges? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's see. Lloyd Bridges. Uh, was he in Res- I haven't seen Reservoir Dogs. And I tried I to block out Armageddon. <laughs> yeah. I don't oh. Him. Oh. Mm. Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. But they, he just. Yoga's just. The question was, he just. They, he was sought after. It doesn't mm-hmm. say he got him he, Reservoir Dogs. I'll just tell you. He did appear in both Reservoir Dogs and yeah. Armageddon. Oh, okay. Okay. I would. Yes, Charlton Heston, because he did that in the beginning of Armageddon. He did the voiceover 65 million years ago. Asteroid wiped out the dinosaurs. Now it's up to Bruce Willis to save us in Armageddon, something like that. No, he he did the voiceover in the beginning. I remember that, Charlton Heston. Ah, uh, 45 would have been the right time to start acting for him. Uh, what? Same with Lloyd Bridges. Yeah, I don't remember Lloyd Bridges being in it though. I just remember him and something about like being a tough guy in in a show in the '90s. I don't know that it was Seinfeld itself, but I kind of remember something about Lloyd Bridges playing a tough guy as old as he was in the '90s during some. Well, he was yeah, I was in Hot Shots. He was in that parody movie with Charlie Sheen. Is Admiral Tug McSomething or other? Oh. So that was the movie. But I'm trying to remember if, you know, who was in Armageddon who would have been a tough guy back. I mean, Charlton Heston was a tough guy. Um, or at least played him on TV. Was uh, it Charlton Heston die? Heston? A couple years ago, never mind. Uh, a few years ago, yeah, 2000-something. Fairly recent. 
So it was after that. Yeah, I'm just trying to remember. Have, have you seen Reservoir Dogs? I've seen it, but I don't remember. You know, I don't, I don't remember them doing much of anything outside that warehouse where they were holed up <laughs> the whole time. Okay. I just remember Charlton Heston as being the opening voiceover guy. But he also said about, like, much sought after. And Heston was too busy with the NRA to do a whole lot of acting. I mean, yeah, he did the voiceover thing, but did he really, did he hit anything else? Mm, any other shows? I'm trying to think. Or, um, I mean, he did that in, like, the later 90s. Uh, oh, well, he was in the, that remake of Planet of the Apes. He also mm-hmm. played, a, a, like, a character. No, in the remake, he was, like, the head ape who said not to trust the humans. The, 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 the Tim Burton 2001 one. There's also a lot of like older actor attitude against television. So if Heston would have come from that era where, oh, we don't do TV. So for him to appear on a sitcom seems way off base for him, which is another reason I like Lloyd Bridges on this. Yeah, I'm just after Airplane, I don't know if he could have been uh, just, you know, that whatever tough guy image there was, was it kind of got in the way of Leslie Nielsen, only not as stone faced. I'm... I'm thinking Heston. <laughs> Rad Loggerheads. Yeah. I, I like Bridges a whole lot more because we know he did TV. All right. Well, did Heston do TV? I don't think so. I don't even think he did a miniseries. Uh, there was a oh, lot that's right. of Ten Commandments and such, anti-TV, you know, actor attitudes back then. Michael Douglas would be the only other thing I could come up with. That would have been way too young, Michael Douglas. I mean, Kirk Douglas? Yeah. Michael Douglas. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, Kirk, yeah, I don't think Kirk Douglas would have been it. <sighs> but I, I, th- I think it's Heston just because that's the only I know he was in Armageddon. I don't know about the other one, and I don't remember Lloyd Bridges being in either one. What about Robert Stack? Mm-hmm. He was a tough guy that did TV. Mm-hmm. But again, I don't remember him being in, in either one of those. Well, again, I haven't seen Mr. Bar Dog except for like the last 20 minutes, which everybody knows. Yeah, I, I can't even focus on the movie part because I don't remember some older TV actor being in it. So it's kind of crazy for me to even think about the movies. Yeah, I mean, if we could just point to a scene where Lloyd Bridges was in one or both of them. But again, I, I and I think Billy Bob Thornton was like the, oh, he was like the Capcom in Armageddon. <laughs> That's the one I remember seeing. So and Ben Affleck, Steve Buscemi, Bruce Willis. I think Billy Bob Thornton was, was like a controller and, uh, and Liv Tyler. And yeah, I, I really think it's Charlton Heston. Yeah, I, I just don't see him doing TV. I really don't, especially a sitcom, because then it becomes the even lower form of TV. <laughs> you know? All right, are you moving toward locking anything in? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do a first for recreational thinking. Uh, maybe Yogesh, you can think of a number or whoever comes closest. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. We have had sort of a pick the number conversation between uh, Victoria and Suzanne in the oh, episode. Okay. okay, so you just want me to generate a, a random number? Sure. Uh, between, want, let's say, one and a hundred. You want me to tell it to you or just think of it? I oh, know, think of it, and then we'll, we'll both guess, and whoever's closest we'll go with. Does that sound okay? Right, sure. Wayne, is that okay? okay. Sounds good. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> okay, you got the number? I got my number in mind. Does your yeah, wish have the number? Okay. I thought of a number, yes. Okay, so we're going to say our numbers, and then you tell which one of us was closest. So I'm going to say 29. I had 42. All right, since, you know, this isn't my main effort thing right now, I put the least effort possible into a number between 1 and 100 and just went for 50. So okay. Lloyd Bridges it is. Lloyd Bridges it is. You're in this round. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, so it's interesting you spent so much time going on Charlton Heston. Because, yeah, in that part of his career, he actually was pretty good about taking uh, small roles and cameos. He did, he, you mentioned uh, Planet of the Apes. He did voiceover work in uh, Cats and Dogs, narrating uh, Armageddon, also narrating Disney's Hercules. 
and a few other things, and appearing on screen as well in Oliver Stone's uh, Any Given Sunday. Um, oh, yeah. Excellent cameo as the Player King in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, and he did actually appear on Friends, believe it or not. Yeah. Well, I thought that was interesting. Anyway, um, sorry, Steve. All right. I actually originally thought this was going in a different direction. In that episode, it's apparently based on a date Jerry went on with the daughter of the author of Revolutionary Road, because Alton Bennis in the show is a famous author. And there's... There are actors who played both Frank Costanza and Morty Seinfeld before the much more well-known portrayers. I think one of them was something Randolph, John Randolph. So I'm trying to um, uh, like rule them out. This incident is very well known among the behind-the-scenes stuff that he like legitimately frightened them and like he took a knife and they did not want him on set again because people said they were uncomfortable with him being there. As far as Reservoir Dogs, I'm pretty sure he's like the boss that gives them their mission he's chris penn's dad and he's in that mexican standoff i wish i knew his name just from that so i'm trying to go with some of the other clues too i was thinking like chamberlain but i think that that's the author of revolutionary road i might be wrong now but the actress clue and the only other thing brought me to again it's a guy like i absolutely know his face i know this role I can think of all of his lines from the jacket and at least a couple of them from Reservoir Dogs because they're funny. He has some good lines in that. I'm going to say Kelly. So, yeah, your bonus, actually, if they had gotten it, would have been about the author, although his name, Revolutionary, was written by Richard Yates. Yates. Um, okay, Yates, yes. And, and his daughter, uh, Monica Yates, was actually in a relationship, I believe, with Larry David. Not Larry, Larry David. David. That's right. Not Simon. Yeah, it was Larry David, not Jerry. He was writing it, yeah. Although, yeah, it was a real-life incident. His suede jacket did, in fact, get ruined yes. because he was intimidated by Richard Yates. Ah. Um, so none of you tried for the Yandere angle. One of my all-time favorite leading lady performances was given in the film Leave Her to Heaven, which came out in 1945, the same year as Dillinger, and that was given by the beautiful Jean Tierney. Um, John Tierney. John Tierney is his name. John Tierney, yeah. Lawrence Tierney. Oh, Lawrence. Sorry, not John. Yeah, Lawrence. So I, yeah, I would not have pulled that. I absolutely remember that episode. And he's good in Reservoir Dogs. He's, I'm I'm right about, he's the, I don't ever know if he gets a name in it, except like the guy who gives them permission or whatever. Joe Cabot or something like that? Maybe. Yeah, that sounds about right. And yeah, because he's, he's in that Mexican standoff. Chris Penn's all, don't, don't point that gun at my dad. All right. Now, Steve and Joe trying to steal from Wayne. Planet Snoopy is a Peanuts-themed recreational area for children that can be found at several amusement parks, including California's Great America in Santa Clara, King's Dominion in Virginia, King's Island in Ohio, and Worlds of Fun in Kansas City, all of which are owned by what company headquartered at its flagship property in Sandusky, Ohio? Oh, it's owned by Cedar Fair then. That's where Cedar Point is. I mean, this is one of those, uh, you know, none of those were my specialty, but I'm from Cleveland and (laughs) Drew Sheeler is from Sandusky. And I've been to Cedar Point quite a few times. I know that they bought Knott's Berry Farm and some of that at some point, I think. Um, Knott's Berry Farm had the the penis characters back in the 80s when I was there. And the company that owned Cedar Point is called Cedar Fair. Okay. Uh, Uh, Pretty sure of that. Yeah. Last time I was at Great America in Santa Clara was Paramount, but that was like 10 years ago. So I I will go with you. Go ahead. I guess yeah. I should make sure you were looking for the theme park or the company? The company. 
company. Okay, uh, Cedar Fair, lock in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of the tricky because it is relatively well known that Cedar Point is in Sandusky. Not that well known that the company is actually called Cedar Fair, not Cedar Point. Yes, America's roller coast. Uh, most roller coasters. <laughs> yes, but, uh, All right. Dorney Park, about five miles from my house. What did he say, Stony Park? Dorney Park, D-O-R-N-E-Y. Ah. Cool. All right. So now we'll just keep moving along to Wayne and Steve trying to steal from Joe. All right. Harlan Ellison is the acknowledged inspiration for Darius Just, the detective at the center of Isaac Asimov's playfully metafictional 1976 murder mystery novel, Murder at the ABA. That novel is set at the annual convention held by what industry trade organization whose name is usually abbreviated ABA? Ooh. Um, American Bar Association? <laughs> I think that, well, hmm, trying to think, does the Bar Association go by the ABA? I think they do. Um, Detectives and murder. Who uh, does a lawyer? I'm trying to think, like, there's definitely the ADA. I'm trying to think if the, if the Bar Association does go by the ABA. I think they do. So do we want to just go with that? Better than American Basketball Association. Yeah, it's, it's not, it is not the ABA that had uh, the Spirits of St. Louis or, uh, you know, that had Dr. J. It is not that one. So for the question, you said you want the name of the association, not the profession that they're in. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll just spot, yeah, I mean, you, you all figured out what the A and the A stand for, but if you just say what the B stands for. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, well, yeah, so obviously American Selling Association. Um, so what else, I guess, what else could it be if we wanted to say, like, because there's obviously more than one ABA, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. Basketball and bar, it could be, like, barbers, it could be... <laughs> barbers bar come to my head, too. Bartenders, it could be, um, bakers, you know, there, there's any number of professions it could be. Yep. We might want to say that bar is too easy. Um, I think it was... I'm thinking this way, though. If, you, if you're looking at a murder mystery and a detective, lawyers go hand in hand with all that. They do. So that's why I was thinking that that makes sense. So I think absent more knowledge, because otherwise I think we'd be just throwing out another starting with B profession. Like yeah. There's no real reason for us to think it's bartenders or barbers. So I think let's stick with bar. So we'll, yeah. we'll lock in American Bar Association. All right. Yeah. I think it was Charlie Brown's father who's in the American Barbers Association. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe? Not to be confused with the National Barbershop Quartets Association, <laughs> uh, whatever, NBS, anyway. Um, I think I know this one because I, I you know, read some blogs. One of them is John Scalzi. He's another science fiction writer. He's a prolific blogger and Twitterer and tweeter and whatnot and you know he takes it when he goes on trips and every so often he heads out to the american booksellers association conference uh, so i'm gonna guess american booksellers association yeah so you're right that detectives might have something to do with the american bar association but in terms of authors like asimov and ellison they would hang out with the american right. booksellers association Nice. Okay. All right. So going into the last cycle, so each of you are getting one last specialist question, so three in all. I believe Steve is in the lead at 39.0, Wayne at 32.1, and Joe at 30.2. I think everyone probably still has a chance right now, although I haven't done the math. So we'll start with Wayne and Joe trying to steal from Steve. The longest-running late-night talk show in the history of the Fox network, yes, longer-running than the ones that were top-lined by Joan Rivers, Chevy Chase, or Wanda Sykes, was hosted from 2006 to 2009 by what former Seinfeld writer, who can currently be seen on Esquire Network's Car Matchmaker? Wow. Hmm. Well, I think we can rule out Magic Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> late-night talk show from 06 to 09 on Fox. Hmm. Oh, that's great. Matchmaker. Uh, and somebody probably in the cars like Leno is, but it obviously isn't Leno. Hmm. 
Yeah, I'm got nothing here. It's like she was a Seinfeld writer. Might have had some ties to NBC, like very late 90s, early 2000s prior to this. Like mm. a comedian that had a show that lasted even a few episodes on NBC as a possibility. Yeah, I was going to think Chris Elliott, but uh, he worked for Letterman. Not, uh, well, he was on back in the 80s and then right, get a life, you know. writing on Seinfeld at that point. Yeah. Hmm. It wasn't Howie Mandel, was it? No, he would have been... He was on St. Elsewhere back in the 80s. He wasn't right, right. sitcoms in the 90s. Yeah. I was trying to think of people with pop shows. I think his was syndicated. Hmm. It wouldn't even be syndicated because it was on the Fox network. Right, right. right. That's right. I think he had one, but it was syndicated. So it was like a daytime show. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, everybody's had a talk show by now. So this <laughs> it's difficult. But it's got to be someone comedic because they wrote for Seinfeld and they had mm. a late night show. They, if you can think of someone with a tie to NBC, that would definitely be helpful, I would think. Uh, not Judah Freelander. <laughs> uh, Fox what? Itself, um, Bernie Mac? No, because he wouldn't be doing anything. <laughs> no, he had a, yeah, he had a right, he might have been dead at that point, but he had a live show. Uh, let's see. What else there is? Oh, oh. Hmm? Uh, Cedric the Entertainer is in the cards. He owned oh. the team. Ah, yeah, that might be oh. it. That could be it. Era. Yeah. He yeah. A car team called uh, CTE Racing. Uh huh. Well, I will. Uh, yeah. I mean, I can't think of anything else. You want to just kind of give it one more run through our brains, but if you can't think of anything, then I'll go with that. Yeah, we've got a comedian from the right era associated with Fox at some point, I think. Mm. And in the cars. Yeah. Sure. Let's go with it. All right. Yeah. I don't know. When looking at former Seinfeld writers, I'm not <laughs> sure if uh, looking at black people was the right high problem will be. <laughs> the only thing I'm, I off about my thoughts. <laughs> I've seen most of the behind the scenes stuff that's very accurate um, so the uh, problem here is that yeah I know quite a few Seinfeld writers they had a habit of putting writer names into episodes so Stephen Corin and Alec Berg are the names of Seinfeld writers probably the most prolific non-Larry David one I believe was Larry Charles who also shows up in many episodes and cameos guy stinks up the airplane bathroom the woman Elaine was based on Carol Leifer. There's no shortage of writers, but none of them were especially telegenic. So I have to think that this is somebody who was brought in like seasons eight and nine when Larry David left and Jerry took kind of more control of the show. I think they were rotating in and out more writers at the time. So it's probably a comedian, I'm thinking, not one of the sort of core Seinfeld writers that fans would know from the first five or six seasons that wrote most of the like super famous ones. But I don't really have a great guess for a Seinfeld related comedian except for and now I'm trying to think of his name because he's uh, he's been in tons of he and Seinfeld are very good friends and I know that he makes cameo appearances I don't know if he was ever a writer but I believe his name is let me see if I can think of it oh it is I can think of his name so this is definitely a shot in the dark but this guy made a memorable cameo as a doorman he may have done some later writing and he's definitely kind of one of those guys who's in a little of everything so I'll guess Larry Miller Larry Miller. That's interesting. Yeah, I think he has the unusual distinction of being one of the few people to appear in Law and Order as himself. <laughs> um, he also appeared in a couple of different episodes. He actually he also has the unusual distinction of being a, a murderer on that show who was brought back as the same character for a different episode. 
Okay. Which is odd, because being a comedian, you wouldn't think of Law and Order as a great home for him. But in any case, this person, your intuition was correct that it was someone brought in in the later seasons of Seinfeld. He did, I think, write a few episodes that are now regarded as classics, particularly The Soup Nazi. Um, ah, I think. Okay. Yeah, the, the little kicks, the one you mentioned earlier, uh, Muffin Tops, Reverse People. His name is Spike Ferriston. Spike Ferriston, okay. So he definitely comes up in some of those, like, behind-the-scenes stuff, yeah. All right, so now penultimate question of the game, Stephen Joe, trying to steal from Wayne. Double duty is racing fans' term for the achievement of driving in both the Indianapolis 500 in Indianapolis and the Coca-Cola 600 in Charlotte, North Carolina on the same day. So on Memorial Day 2001, who became the only racer to date to successfully complete the full length of both races, so the total 1,100 miles in a single calendar day? I mean, this one is definitely going to just be a guess. <laughs> um, we're just going to have to pick someone we know who was racing around 2001. What are the two events? The Indy 500 and the Coca-Cola 600. Okay, so, so Indy 500. Okay, so where are both those yeah. things? Okay. Both an IndyCar um, and an NASCAR race. Yes, so it's an IndyCar and an NASCAR and... Um, and someone well-known-ish in 2001, but there's no factual basis for us to know this because I I certainly yeah. do not know people who full double duty. You don't either. But do we just want to pick somebody who's like around that time, but not the most obvious? So I figure like it's probably not Jeff Gordon because he's like a little too obvious, or Dale Earnhardt Jr. But yeah. Maybe, but maybe like uh, I'm trying to think who was who was almost that popular then. Um, I'm guessing it'd be somebody who's maybe been around for a while and. And may not be on the top, you know, looking to actually win them, but wants to kind of get into the trivia books. <laughs> yeah, would, would probably yeah. be an older, maybe someone, yeah. probably someone not active anymore. Because as a rookie, you wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't race 1,100 miles in one day as a young, inexperienced driver. Yeah. So this could be somebody kind of who was on their last legs and doing this to cement them in the record books for something else, or it could have been a journeyman, like you're saying, someone we probably wouldn't really even know then. But yeah, probably not a big name, so probably not a Jeff Gordon or a Dale Jr. Maybe like, no, he was retired by then already, right? Richard Petty was already retired, right? In uh, one. Oh, maybe. Better than... I know how Richard Pettis feels. Um, Trying to think of... Alancer Sr., Alancer Jr., Mario Andretti. It's not Dale Sr., because I believe that's the year that... Or that's a couple years after he crashed. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, just kind of a random out-there name. Hmm. We could go with, like, an Alancer Jr. I think the time frame would fit for that. I don't think Sr. Mm -hmm. would fit. Um, Sr., yeah. I don't think it's in like Andretti. I, it could be Petty. I, I, I'm not a racer. I don't know when Richard Petty retired, but I don't think it's infeasible for it to have been him in like a one. I think he still could have been around. Not getting the sense he, I don't know, from what little I can see of his like public persona that he'd do something like that. Okay. Know. Yeah. Um, maybe someone a little more flamboyant. I don't know. Um, yeah. yeah. Andretti or, or Alan Sir Jr. <laughs> uh, I'm fine with going Alan Sir Jr. Okay. We'll lock that in. Alan Sir yeah. Jr. Alan Jr. All right. Locking in Alan Jr. Wayne? Okay. You guys mentioned Richard Petty. He was definitely retired by 2000. Okay. <laughs> um, he did try and get in an Indy car, decided his feet were too big for the pedals, and never bothered going for the Indy 500. Okay. Dale Sr. died in February of 2001, so it wasn't him. Lights went up at Charlotte Motor Speedway in 1994. 
opening the possibility for doing the double because the race, the Coca-Cola 600, was moved to a later start time. Five drivers have done the double. I can name four of them off the top of my head. You got Kurt Busch, the most recent. I believe his brother Kyle will be in a car for Penske this year, although it has not been announced, but I bet that one's going to happen. John Andretti has done it. Robbie Gordon has done it. There's one guy I can't think of right now, but the one that completed all 1,100 miles is Tony Stewart. Yeah, I uh, well, at least as far as Wikipedia goes, I think you, you did name the four, Andretti, Gordon, Bush, and regardless, the one who is... So, uh, yeah, Bush's attempt in 2014, his engine blew out after 906 miles, but the only one who did the full 500 plus 600, as you said, Tony Stewart. Look, so it, it is someone we'd, we'd, we would know. We'd heard someone you would have heard of after, the, after hearing the name, but obviously not one that we were spitballing around. Tony Stewart started out in IndyCars as part of the Indy Racing League in the mid to late 90s. So he went from IndyCars to NASCAR, and he is the last driver to ever win a NASCAR championship driving a Pontiac. All right. Good to know. Very interesting information. So it looks like... Huh. So it looks like going into the last question, it could be a race between Steve and Wayne, except they're both on the same side of this question. All right. So I guess this won't decide the standings, but it will. Uh, we're all playing for pride, really, yeah. here. So, uh, yeah, just as much pride at stake here as in any other question. Okay. So Wayne and Steve now trying to steal from Joe. So the narrator of the most famous book by an Ellison not named Harlan, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, wishes that he had the speaking voice of what actor? Ironically, despite being described in Encyclopedia Britannica as having a, quote, resonant, mellifluous speaking voice with a unique, pleasing timbre, end quote, this man first became a star during the silent film era. Today, we remember him for indelible audiovisual performances as Bulldog Drummond, Martin Aerosmith, Sidney Carton, King Rudolph V of Ruritania, and perhaps most resonantly for listeners of this podcast, a brilliant yet somehow unemployed quizzer named Beauregard Bottomley. All right, so Sidney Carton is a tale of two cities, right? So somebody who played Sidney Carton in a probably like 30s version of a tale of two cities. I think he said that he got first known in silent films, but was more famed for talkies. So that quizzer name, the Beauregard, whatever that, it's ringing a bell with me too, but. Obviously, the only one I know for sure is that, yeah, Sidney Carton would be A Tale of Two Cities. So somebody who starred in a version of A Tale of Two Cities that would have either been in the 30s or 40s, and somebody whose voice was distinctive, had a pleasing timbre. Someone white, I mean, because oh, okay. at first we were saying, like, you know, it's, it's Invisible Man, so I thought it might have at first been, you know, like Paul Robeson, but someone white, obviously, from those roles. Uh, I don't think Dickens had many black protagonists in his novels. So who is a famous 30s, 40s-ish actor who would be notable for their voice? Not necessarily there. Looking at, like, uh, no, I don't... One Cheney. <laughs> I was just saying that it's somebody, it's somebody who was in silent films, so it could be like a, a Cagney, you know, because he was in silent movies before he went to talkies. Um, I'm not sure how amazing his voice is, as far as one you'd want to have for your own. Uh, <laughs> um, this is like fun, the, listen, it's fun to listen to Jimmy Cagney. I don't know how many people would want to talk like him though. Yeah, uh, that's what I was saying. I don't know how many people want James Cagney's voice. Ah, but yeah, who has a pleasing voice you would maybe want to have? Um, this is too early for it to be like Gregory Peck or somebody. Um, just trying to think who has a 
Who's got a nice voice you wouldn't mind listening to? Robert Mitchum. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't even begin to guess on this one at all. I'm just trying to think of somebody who like who would make any sense for just having like a pleasing voice. You know, it's um. So it's certainly not going to be. Uh... If that's the case, can you think of other movies from say the 30s that were known for having a narrator? You know, kind of like. Uh, Morgan, yeah, narrator. I was gonna say we're we're thinking of like the Morgan Freeman of the of the 30s or 40s. Um, yeah. I really do not know though. Um, we have to go with something. So let's say uh, we're on them. It's not Bogart. His voice isn't that great. Um, I do think Gregory Peck has a great voice, but I think he's too young to have been in silent movies. I might be wrong on that. He might have been, but yeah, I don't know his age at all. I feel like he would have been too young to be in silent movies. Orson mm. Welles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Orson Welles has a nice voice. Um, he narrated back it, in the day. But again, I don't think he was in silent movies. I think his first forays into films were in the talkie era. So somebody who was a crossover person still, and obviously more famous in talkies, so it's none of the big three silent movie stars, or it's nobody like that. Um, somebody who may have been known on radio, because like, to go back to Gunsmoke and James Arness, he did not play that role on radio. Uh, it was like William Conrad from Jake and the Fat. Batman that played the role of Marshall Matt Dillon on radio because he had that booming voice. I'm just trying to think of somebody who would at least like be somebody that was in silent movies and still got more famous in talkies. So like, I don't know. I think Errol Flynn fits for that. He was old enough to have been in them. Um, you want to go with that? I, his voice isn't bad, I guess. I don't know. I don't think he's great in house He's of the right era, so I don't yeah. see why. We, we have to go with something, so we'll say Errol Flynn. All right, you're locking in Errol Flynn? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, lots of great names discussed there. Yeah. All right, uh, Joe? I'm not sure, but I'm going to go for the humorous one. I don't know if Ralph Ellison was intending that, but I will go, uh, since we're talking about the book Invisible Man, I will just go with the Invisible Man, Claude Rains. Yeah, that's a, a pretty good guess. I'm not, I don't know if he started in silent. He may, he may very well have, but yeah, he did actually play the lead in James Whale's film of The Invisible Man. I think that was his first major film role, mm-hmm. which, yeah, he just, he had, he did have a great voice, and which is important if you're playing The Invisible Man, since you're not Not much stage presence, you know. Yeah, yeah, and he, um, yeah, surprisingly, I mean, in his day, very, in fact, he, I think, was at one time the highest paid actor in Hollywood, even though mm-hmm. he's not that well-remembered today, but, um, yeah, did I, oh, Oh, shoot. I, I meant actually to write Oscar winning as a clue in there. It looks like it got left out at some point. Yeah, because uh, Claude Rains did not win an Oscar, um, although he gave many great performances. But speaking of Oscars, this is actually a question. Uh, if you all were at Trivia Nationals last year in Steve Perry's Perry's Pairs Quiz, Oh, Remember, he okay. asked, who were the only pairs of winners of Best Actor and Best Actress to have the same surname? Same last name. Yeah, I do remember that. Uh, yeah. Do you remember what the answers were? Wasn't one of them Houston? No. Oh. Yeah. I mean, they were people from different families. So one a pair was Joan Crawford and Broderick Crawford. Okay. Um, the other pair of people who had won Oscars for lead performances with the same surname, although not related. The actress was uh, just very recently a winner, Olivia Coleman and the actor winning at the uh. the in the 40s, but shortly before he played Beauregard Bottomley, his name was, you know, Joe? Ronald Coleman. Ronald Coleman. All right. Uh, he, he's actually, uh, speaking of Harlan Ellison, uh, his performance in Lost Horizon is discussed in uh, Paladin of the Lost Hour yep. quite a bit. <laughs> 
TV version Glenn Turman famously says, uh, look at me, man. I run an all-night service mod. I'm not Ronald Coleman. <laughs> all right. So I believe that the game to an end. And I'll recheck the scores, but it looks like we have Steve at 39.0, Wayne at 37.1, and Joe at 30.2. Good game to everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very fun, guys. Uh, yeah. So um, I do now. I guess I should have realize i'm pretty sure i know joe's three so joe your three specialties were voice actors harlan ellison and just space in general planets uh, or Jupiter solar system solar, solar system? system yeah okay and um wayne was obviously race car drivers i don't know if it was specifically indie or stock or nascar or whatever um and was it just like classic tv in general or uh, Indy 500, 20th century television, because I wanted to give him more to go with than just saying ah, like 80s okay. or something. And then uh, Peanuts. Peanuts. Okay, yeah, because Peanuts came out a few times. And two of mine should be pretty obvious. The third one, maybe not as much, because I think I was, I had a way that I pitched it. So mine were the obvious ones being Seinfeld and the Cleveland Indians. I believe I said for the third one, the 8-bit and 16-bit video games, to not just say video games. Yeah, right. just yeah. classic video games, because I knew that came up enough. Yeah, and there were ways to tie that in, well, to the Cleveland Indians especially. Yeah, it gave, it gave some nice room. And that Hogan Dolly one, I was surprised as soon as I realized it showed up in everything from, like, turn of the 20th century comic strips to FBI training academy in Quantico. <laughs> That is very fun to know now, that it, that is such a common phrase. Yeah, I'm going to look that up, because a lot of Nintendo's games from the 80s were based on older physical games, like the Duck Hunt video game was actually, they had like in the 1970s kind of a light gun thing that had the same duck like projected on the wall, so I wonder if they had something like that back then. I'll have to look that up. All right, so before we sign off, again, you know, you're, you're free to stick around and give feedback after the official sign-off, but before that, we just will have a few minutes for each of you to just give one final statement about anything you want. If, as long as it's not too long or offensive, it'll be kept in. Uh, to let the lowest scoring player have the last word, so we'll start with Steve. All right, I don't really have any manifestos or anything. I guess... In general, I would just like to say that I hope that people who listen to podcasts like this and maybe make their own will think of, if they never have, coming to an event like TriviaCon. It's coming up in April in Vegas or to Trivia Nationals or to one of those things. I was introduced into this world little about eight years ago, basically, by Drew Sheeler who I think everybody here at least knows. I don't know how well known he is nationally, obviously, but it's a very good friend of mine from when I went to Case and we were in the trivia club together. He had been on Millionaire and uh, I always say Teen Jeopardy and I think he always chides me and corrects it as Child Jeopardy or whatever they called it then. But he, he was on game shows well before I was. He invited me to Tacona in 2012 and I thought that there was no way I would go and have any fun or do well or compete in anything because I was a big fish in a small pond at best and really like a medium fish in a medium pond. Going ended up being one of the best decisions of my life. It's indirectly or very directly actually helped me get on Jeopardy. It's gotten me a ton of friends. The individual events are some of the most fun things that I've ever been to. And the trivia community is great and it's full of great people, not just because they know a lot of things but for vast and sundry reasons. And it could always use new blood. So if you are ever thinking that you're intimidated, that you can't do something like this, try to stop thinking like that. Let your talent (laughs) shine. And uh, don't think that you can't play with the big boys because 
You probably can. All right. Excellent sentiment. Um, I believe Trial Jeopardy is a slightly different show hosted by Chris Hansen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I forgot what they officially called it when it was, when it was good. Jep. Jep. All right. Our second place player, uh, Wayne. Well, thanks for having me on this. It was a very interesting format. You're definitely one of the great trivia players. So to hear your writing and what you write about and to take these subjects that we're experts in and write stuff for us, I think is really a cool thing to do. Uh, As far as jumping off what Steve said about playing with the big dogs, trivia is not about being intelligent. Trivia is about recall on demand. And you take me, I graduated high school with a C minus average, did not do college. And for me to hang with guys like Joe and Steve and score as well as I did is something that goes to that recall on demand. Don't be afraid to jump in and try it. There's lots of trivia events now these days with uh, Sporkle and uh, TriviaCon and Geek Bowl and Trivia Nationals. Uh, I won't get to make it to Trivia Nationals this year, so I'll get to miss you guys once again. But I am doing a ton of writing for it. I wrote a complete 5x5 board. Nice. I'm writing 500 questions again in case a miracle happens and I do get to show up. (laughs) But if I don't get to show up, those questions I'll be giving them to Paul Pocket for Top Dogs, which I wrote. I think it used 49 of my questions last year. So I'll be at Trivia Nationals in spirit. Nice. Good good to know. Um, And finally, Joe. Thanks. Yeah. I'll be at Sporacle in April or TriviaCon in April. I don't know if I'll make it to Trivia Nationals, but if not, I'll, I probably can contribute in other ways. Um, I wanted to thank Yogesh again, you, for your time and effort on this. This is really great, and the work on it you've been doing is, is an awful lot. Um, thanks to Wayne and Steve. Good game. <laughs> yes, good game. Uh, thanks, yeah. Uh, thanks to the listeners, whoever may be out there. I'd like to thank the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, but they did not help at all. <laughs> <laughs> the Chubb Group did not give yeah, the any Chubb, money. It's the uh, Orangey Harding Foundation or what have you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, finally, it's it's okay not to like things, but don't be a jerk about it unless it involves Nazis, in which case, go for broke. And uh, that's it. This has been Episode 9 of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shrout. Thanks for listening.